Hi there, welcome back. Let's check out what's going on with Midas Touch, man. I babysit Midas Touch, thanks for 242k. We're gonna check out to see what Midas Touch has to say. Got the Midas Touch. Everything we touch turns to gold. On the other hand, Trumpy got the reverse Midas Touch. Everything he touched turned to shit. <laughs> oh, yes, again. Crushed by the law, Trump and co defendants suffer everything they deserve legal AF. Suck it, old man. Oh, shit. I gotta find my other Bluetooth. Donald Trump's lawyers, if he continues this conduct of harassing and intimidating witnesses, that taints the jury pool, and as a result, I am more inclined to setting an early trial date. If he yeah, continues yeah. down this path, it's, it's really up to him. It's, it's his choice. I thought it was brilliant how she framed it. I think special counsel Jack Smith's lawyer, Tom Windham, who's been leading the proceedings before Judge Chutkin is going to raise that among a number of other uh, issues as, as, as well, but say, no, we're ready to go January 2nd, 2024. Ultimately, I think that uh, it probably more looks like a February or March trial date, if I were to guess, but I think she'll set an early 2024 trial. Yeah. A couple of things. That docket has been awfully quiet, uh, although there was one event about a week ago where in that case, given uh, classified information, this is to show you with it, when you have a judge that's got a firm command of federal rules and jurisprudence in her courtroom, she knows how to enter a protective order. Um, so in that case, there's already a protective order that Donald Trump doesn't oppose about how to use classified information, which is part of even, even the Jan 6th insurrection, clinging to power, failure to transfer peacefully, um, the reins of power to, to Joe Biden, even that has classified information, not necessarily national defense information, but classified information that they, they that needs to be protected. They've already assigned a class, a, a SIPA uh, agent uh, officer, and they've already entered into a protective order. While when we get down to Mar-a-Lago in a minute, while, you know, Judge Cannon is still, I'm looking at my clock, my watch here, still in almost September, still jerking around with the protective order and what it, what it should say. And canceling and scheduling hearings and then re, and then not scheduling them again. The old, so we'll get to that as a compare and contrast between the two judges in a moment. But lastly, for me, in the only thing that I thought would have been filed already, but maybe it will before... Monday, although it's already Saturday, is that the DOJ has not filed anything to put the judge on notice about social media or other things that Donald Trump has done, which would, in their view, be violative of her conditions of release. I would have thought, yes, they could, they could bring it up on their feet while they're there, but I would have thought if they really wanted to press the issue, because everybody in our audience and even us as the commentators are like, waiting for some judge to say enough you have violated my conditions of release you're beyond your first your, your first amendment rights stop at the water's edge of criminal justice and the proper administration of justice as judge chutkin says as judge mcafee just said um and others but it hasn't happened yet and i would have thought if they were going to raise it 
I would have seen a filing on Thursday or Friday. And I looked on the docket and I didn't see anything. So they can still mention it on their feet. But I think the focus, as you said, Ben, is going to be for Monday is let's get the trial ready. The, the sooner we get the trial, the more control we have over him. Let him keep talking. It's evidence in our favor anyway, eventually. The more he talks, the better it is. Like the Tucker Carlson interview, where, where that in, in lieu of a debate in which he said at the end, basically, it was a beautiful thing that happened on January 6th, basically promoting civil war. You know, that's just another, you know, type it up, put an exhibit tab on it. We're going to use it at trial. Uh, so, um, and I agree with you. I think she sets a trial that's a lot closer in time and certainly with a 24 at the end of it for the trial of Donald Trump in the District of Columbia and completely rejects this ridiculous argument about we can't be done until a year and a half later in, in 2026. That's not going to happen. Nothing that Judge Chuckin has said so far. It's the opposite of what she has said, which is I'm going to run a very tight ship here on a rocket docket. And if you step over any lines, it means I'm going to set a quicker trial. And she can't think, you know, even though it hasn't been brought to her attention in formal filings, she's got eyes, she's got ears. Her clerks watch social media. They know what Donald Trump's done. They know the doxing that's happened with the grand jury through his through his proxies in, in, in Georgia. And everybody's watching her. She, for me, she's, the judges like McAfee are watching her. She's, for me, the lead case. It's the one that's the most important to our system of government and to our democracy. Not so much the Cannon case. And yes, George is really important. But I think it's Judge Chutkin. And I think she wears that responsibility well, knows she has it. And then, for me, therefore, all things point to some sort of 2024 trial date for Donald Trump. That brings us uh, to Judge Cannon as we held, as we head south to the Southern District of Florida, where on Friday she granted a motion for leave to file a surreply oh, by Stan Woodward, Donald Trump's co-defendant, Waltine Nauta's lawyer. Donald Trump's co-defendants in that case for the willful retention of national defense information include his valet slash assistant, Waltine Nauta, who's represented by Stan Woodward, and Carlos de Oliveira, the head of maintenance at Mar-a-Lago, who's represented by John Irving. Both Woodward and Irving are paid for by Donald Trump's political action committee. Both Woodward and Irving serve as co-counsel for Pete Navarro together in Washington, D.C., in the contempt of Congress case, by the way, which is set for trial the first week of September, uh, where Navarro refused to show up uh, and be deposed or produce documents in connection with the January 6th committee proceedings. Um, and so about two weeks ago or so, Judge Cannon, on her own, it's called sua sponte in Latin, which means on her own initiative, basically demanded after special counsel Jack Smith filed what's called a Garcia uh, motion asking the court to hold a hearing about conflicts of interest that exist by the lawyers uh, that Donald Trump's paid for representing the various co-defendants who also represent witnesses who may want to testify, as well against the co-defendants who the same lawyers are representing, having the lawyer's one client testify against the lawyer's other client, or having even a lawyer's former client where the lawyer got all of these confidences testify against, say, Waltine and Nauta. And Judge Cannon on her own must have heard this argument on Fox because it took place the day before she issued her order was on Fox on Sunday. She made the order on Monday about two weeks
weeks ago saying, and Jack Smith addressed the propriety of the Washington, D.C. grand jury that's still been receiving evidence while at the same time uh, I have jurisdiction over this federal criminal case now. Again, Judge Cannon trying to do exactly what she was overturned for back in 2022 by the 11th Circuit. Me, mine, I want that jurisdiction of the Washington, D.C. grand jury. Why aren't you bringing that to me so she could do her corrupt and incompetent Judge Eileen Cannon things? The good news is that Judge Eileen Cannon's corruption is matched by her incompetence, and she's created this whole legal quagmire in her court. And Jack Smith's like, okay, it's fine. It's perfectly allowable to have uh, a grand jury in Washington, D.C., where it relates to subject matter that's relevant to what the grand jury was working on before. And Judge Cannon's been striking all of Jack Smith's under seal filings. So Jack Smith used the opportunity by Judge Cannon asking for that response. Why do you have the D.C. grand jury? Jack Smith answered the question. He goes, well, Judge, it's because employee number four, who's referenced in the superseding indictment, is someone, he doesn't mention the name, but it's Yusuf Tavares, the head of IT. Yusuf Tavares used to be represented by Stan Woodward, and when Yusuf Tavares testified before the Washington, D.C. grand jury back in March of 2023, he lied. So when Woodward was representing Tavares, Tavares lied. Then what happened was on July 5th, after the D.C. presiding judge, Judge Jeb Boesberg, held a Garcia hearing about potential conflicts of interest that exist, guess what happened? Yusuf Tavares said, I don't want Stanley Woodward, the Trump paid for lawyer, representing me. Yusuf Tavares, unlike Carlos de Oliveira, who's now a co-defendant, Tavares realized, wait a minute, so Trump is paying lawyers to represent me to help Trump and screw me over? exactly what's going on and Tavares learned that when a federal public defender was appointed to him so then Yusuf Tavares told Jack Smith the truth hey Jack Smith I lied to you back in March of 2023 into the grand jury here's what actually happened Donald Trump Waltine Nauta Carlos de Oliveira were involved in a criminal conspiracy they wanted me as the head of IT to destroy surveillance footage they asked me to do that and that and I lied to the grand jury when I said that they I had no knowledge about these classified records or anything about them asking me to destroy surveillance footage so then after Jack Smith files that then Stan Woodward like acts pissed off at that and sends this whole rambling brief judge we need to file a sir reply Jack Smith's now talking about grand jury proceedings I kid you not this is what Stan Woodward said Jack Smith's now talking about grand jury proceedings in Washington DC he's not allowed to do that Judge Cannon you asked for that that was literally the request that you made brief the propriety of it and she's been striking all of his under seal filings that Jack Smith has tried to make before and now the Walty Nauta's lawyer is whining about it because he's like, this hurts my reputation. And now people are coming after me and saying that I'm the reason why you sold Tavares didn't tell the truth to the grand jury in March of 23. And that's not the case. And my reputation's harmed. It's harming all of our reputations. Wow, 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 wow. And you just see, Popak, the difference between like what's going on in this docket in canon it's like a mess she's like striking documents you got people whining and complaining and sir replies and you know and, and she's inviting briefing and then people are and then 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 the trump people get upset when jack smith responds to a brief like it is a mess and again it is corruption meets idiocracy here there is not an appealable order yet for jack smith to make so people go why hasn't he gone to the 11th circuit yet 
because there she hasn't made an order yet that would be called an interlocutory appealable order so he hasn't been able to do it but that's coming we'll see that i'm sure in the next two or three weeks with all of the ridiculous orders that she's been making and again she's just created such disorganization in her docket and, and that's kind of my overall point about that but you know we learned of course through that how jack smith was able to get Yusel Tavares, who was not cooperating, in fact, lying to the grand jury to become a cooperating witness and to say, this is this is what happened. And, um, that was a big, big development there as well. Hope final thoughts on that one. Mm, let's see. As I said last week, Stan Woodward was not going to be happy with the filing by the federal government because it, it calls him out as being a bought and paid for Save America PAC Trump lawyer. It wasn't representing his client, and they did it by way of showing that there is an obvious conflict because one day, and you can tell from his filings, Stan Woodward hopes that day will never come. Employee number four, Yusil, Yusil Tavares, is going to take the stand on behalf of the government as a witness for the prosecution to testify about his, his involvement with the conspiracy involving the butler, the maintenance man, and himself to delete the server uh, the server footage at the request of the boss, which is Donald Trump. And then Stan Woodward would have to cross-examine a former client of his, not just a former, the, the, spect, the spectacle of already, under the, under the rules of professional conduct, cross-examining your own former client who is now effectively testifying against your current client, Walt Nauta, um, is already not permitted under the rules from a conflict standpoint. But then, to tell the complete story, the Department of Justice, because Woodward forced them to, said there's another element here, Judge, which is people only tell the truth when they get out from under a bought-and-paid-for Trump lawyer, which means they are impugning the integrity of Stan Woodward. And I said last week that Stan Woodward is in deep crap and was not going to like this attack on him and, and if he doesn't like it then he's going to hate it now because not only is the has the department of justice told the story about what happened in the dc circuit court with chief judge boseberg who was presiding over a hearing about a uh, about a conflict of interest there related to the testimony of employee number four Tavares to the grand jury in march but the judge basically made his own decision that Tavares needed an independent lawyer to consult with. It wasn't that it wasn't so much that the that the client asked for it. Tavares raised his hand and said, I think I need my own lawyer here, Judge. The judge, as an as as the as the head of the court, said you need to talk to somebody, even if for a moment, about with an independent evaluation about your situation, meaning whether you lied to a grand jury and i gotta get you out from under mr woodward and so when Tavares came back he said two things i fire mr woodward although woodward then in his papers said he's not sure that he was canned by Tavares. that's obviously not true and the second thing he said was i now need to cooperate with the federal government and tell them and recant my testimony we have a word we have a concept in the law for somebody that allows a witness to testify untruthfully under oath. It's called suborning perjury. 
And the government has basically said that Stan Woodward knew or should have known that his client was lying about the server deletion conversation conspiracy and allowed that to be to be given to the grand jury, i.e. suborning perjury, which, by the way, is, is itself a crime. When Stan Woodward jumped up, up and down in a very short filing to try to save his reputation, that's when the, the uh, Department of Justice said, you know what, you want to see the whole transcript of what went down with Judge Boesberg? It's not going to be good for you, Stan. But you want us to do that? We'll give you the whole transcript, Judge, in camera for you to review on your own because certain elements are still sealed. And you seem to have a problem, Your Honor, with sealing things. So why don't you just take a look at it and you'll see what we're talking about. Woodward said, I want one more bite at the apple which is quite unusual to get what you refer to, Ben, as a sir reply. Normally, in motion practice, 99% of the time, you have three pieces of paper. You have the, the f initial filing, the motion, right, by whoever's making the motion. We call them the movement. Could be the government, could be the defense. Then you have the opposition paper, which is the paper for the party that didn't make the motion. And then you have a reply, which is which is basically two briefs for the party that has the motion, one brief in the middle for the party that doesn't. You don't normally get a, re a reply to the reply, right? You don't each get two briefs unless you ask for the permission of the judge for what's called the sir reply, which is to address something that you should be allowed to address, not just an oral argument if she holds a hearing. And so she allowed the sir reply. This, again, is a study in contrast between how Judge Chutkin in the District of Columbia runs her court where there's already a protective order in place, there's already documents being, in the, in the much bigger case, there's already document, documents being provided, a trial date will be set, I'm sure, in 2024 on Monday, and other than that, very little commotion, whereas everything down in Florida is a cluster, is a total cluster. And it's because, as you said, because of her inexperience, slash mediocrity, slash... I don't want to go as far as corruption, but whatever it is, she is, uh, she is, I practice down there. She, she, let's be, let's, let's be frank. Uh, she is inviting, inviting shenanigans and things that are improper and then buying into it by giving people additional briefs and driving the government crazy about sealing instead of just running an orderly administration of justice. And we're seeing it. And, and, and that's why I've always, I've recently come to the conclusion, and I said it on Wednesday's edition with, with Karen uh, of Legal AF. I said, I am more thinking that, that Jack Smith has, has now, if he didn't before, he certainly now does, sees Florida as sort of the stalking horse. Like, let's just, we'll do everything we got to do down there. Yep. That's not my big case. My big case, I got Chutkin. I got home court advantage. I'm in the District of Columbia where I want to be with a jury that I want to pick from. This other thing, yes, it is, it's important to the national defense that he be held accountable, Donald Trump, for yeah, the bad, bad things true. he did at Mar-a-Lago. But I don't think that's any longer Jack Smith's focus. He'll use that, though, as we said earlier, to whipsaw Donald Trump and his team because that team numerically is outmatched. Look, I've been doing defense for a long time. You're always outmatched with the federal government on the other side because they are the federal government and they have thousands of people, hundreds of people assigned to your case and they have an unlimited budget. Um, and so and you, you're going up against them with like your, I'll just talk a little bit about, uh, you're going up against them with a $100,000 retainer that you got from your client. 
right? The, and, and you and your associate, a paralegal, and you're waging war against the, Depart the United States of America. Donald Trump's the same boat, okay? He's got two, two lead lawyers, right, in, in for the federal side, both of which have one associate apiece. This is the tiniest of law firms, okay? They, they wouldn't even register on a list of top law firms. They wouldn't even be on the top. I mean, you know, law So people that know that don't practice the way you and I practice, you know, mega law firms in this country have two to 3,000 lawyers at their disposal. I'm in a mid-sized firm, medium firm. We have 50 lawyers. These guys are four guys, literally four guys, with whatever budget that they've been given if they get paid against the United States of America. So Don, so I see Jack Smith not only working, even, even, even if it's not coordinated with, with Bonnie Willis, to whipsaw him there and with Alvin Bragg in New York, but whipsaw him between the two cases. And, and that is only, again, a nurse to the benefit of the United States of America, the Department of Justice. And Special Counsel Jack Smith filed the case grand jury indicted, brought the indictment, the grand jury indicted in the Southern District of Florida, was assigned to Judge Cannon. He knew that he was going to be bringing the other indictment to Washington. He didn't know he was going to draw Judge Chutkin, but knew he was bringing the other one. And I just think he was like, look, we got it. When it comes to Cannon now, she doesn't know what she's doing. And I believe, you know, you don't have to agree with this, Popak, and she's corrupt. So let's... <laughs> take advantage of the fact that also she doesn't know what she's doing and he told his team i have no doubt file motion after motion the, the appropriate motions pressure and then in between and put the pressure on the right way yeah. but between her and trump's lawyers they were going to make the mistakes and that's exactly what has happened, where Donald Trump's lawyers have, like, made requests of Judge Chutkin in D.C. Hey, Judge, can we file this? No, no. <laughs> she goes, no, stick to the deadlines, and then we'll hold the hearing, and then we'll show up in court, and then we'll have an, and then we'll have an orderly proceeding. You know what it's like, Ben, from our other worlds and sports? The Department of Justice has the, the, the brain power and the horsepower and the bandwidth to play... Uh, full court, uh, fast break basketball from the beginning of the game till the end without any timeouts and any break. And these guys are trying to do at best man to man in two different courts when they're completely outmatched. And that, again, inures to the benefit. Same thing, if we're coming up with a theme for today's show, same thing is happening in Fawny Willis's home court of Fulton County in a state court that she is supreme. She's at home, literally, in that courthouse and in that courtroom with Rico, which is her friend. She's sophisticated in that area. She's got an expert on her own staff that she consults with on Rico. She successfully tried up to 20 people in a Rico conspiracy involving bribery at a school board in Georgia. She's already had a dress rehearsal for this type of big, sprawling case like this. And, and she advantage Fawny Willis almost at every turn. Even if it goes to federal court, she's got enough people on her staff that have practiced in federal court, and they've been in federal court before. It's not going to throw her for a loop. While each of these people, the best lawyers that I have spoken about so far are the ones, I guess, by Donald Trump. Maybe you put Steve Sadow, the new lawyer in Georgia that really represents rappers most of the time, as being in that in that category with Todd Blanche and um, and John Lauro, Chris Kice having disappeared off the 
off the face of the earth recently. So if that's his team, it goes down considerably from there as to who's representing the others. Rudy Giuliani's lawyer already said, um, I'm out uh, after the, the initial appearance. Nobody's lining up to represent Kathy Latham or the guy that's still sitting in jail because he can't figure out a way to get himself out of a bond situation, get himself a, you know, bonded. Or, or these other cheese bros probably going to try. Cheese bro is probably going to be his own lawyer. Rudy Giuliani may end up being his own lawyer. So, the high point of law- lawyering on the defense is is uh, is a Blanche and Lauro, and we've seen them so far not do great, especially in front of Judge Chutkin. And then it drops considerably the quality of lawyering, whereas. Look at everybody on Jack Smith's team. Look at everybody on Fawdy Willis's team. I'm not saying the better lawyers win cases, but I'm saying the better lawyers often win cases. You know, and I think the importance of law and order and where we are in this historical moment is really symbolized, though, in that Trump mugshot and the reaction to the mugshot. You know, most Americans were repulsed. By that mugshot. Most Americans look at that and see that this is a malignant, narcissistic, sociopathic, criminal, treasonous traitor who has spewed and spread so much hate and division in our country that is going to take such a long time to repair. And it's embodied in that gaze. It's embodied in that look. It's embodied in everything that he and this MAGA strand that has taken over the Republican Party represents. It is not normal behavior, nor is the conduct about what MAGA Republicans did and how they treat that situation afterwards. I mean, you have Donald Trump on social media posting uh, mugs and merch and t-shirts that say never surrender. He, he surrendered. That's That photo is in connection with literally surrendering to Fulton County. Um, and they are spreading the mugshot as though this is a high point for them. They are posting on social media mugshots of, of, of them next to other people like other people who have been criminally convicted of things like 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 this is MAGA right now. This is what it means. That's why I don't call these people conservative. This is the Republican Party today. This is why I say there has been a paradigm shift in what just American politics are. Do not call MAGA Republicans conservative. There you have Don Jr., a leader of the MAGA Republican Party showcasing Donald Trump as a criminal next to other people who have been arrested next to other mugshots. Here you have Alina Abba, Donald Trump's lawyer or spokesperson, saying that she thinks the mugshot is, is the greatest thing ever. Here, play this clip. People aren't stupid. The mugshot was probably one of the best things that ever happened to him probably at this point. So thank you, Fanny. First off, her name is Fawny, and they intentionally mispronounce her name over and over again. And for them to say the mugshot is the best thing to happen to him, and then the way they utilize and and weaponize that. I'll show you what went down on the Fox Propaganda Network as well. This is Jesse Waters, and Jesse Waters is like the new Tucker there. And he says how... 
despite the fact that he has an unblemished record as a heterosexual, that this photograph aroused him. Play this clip. I am now going to book the Fulton County photographer for my Christmas card. <laughs> because, Judge, and I say this with a unblemished record of heterosexuality, he looks good. And, and he looks hard. And... Yeah, and, and, and that behavior, folks, is frankly what's inspired me to significantly reduce my own practice of law to do this and to do this education and to build the Midas Touch Network to what it is today because that's not normal behavior. And I know that there are forces spending billions of dollars building a propaganda network to push and say things like that. And I know that all of you, like me who watch this, are tired of being gaslit, are tired of having our country uh, being controlled by purely evil, malignant, narcissistic, sociopathic abusers. And we need to take a stand and that begins also with the civic education and engagement and talking about facts and data and evidence and pushing back against this absurdity. I mean, Donald Trump self-reporting that he's 6'3 and 215 pounds, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the same weight as Muhammad Ali uh, in his prime. I mean, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? The same way he lies about his crowd sizes, the same way he lies about he lies about everything. You know, when I was considering, should we do a, and by the way, when Donald Trump was arraigned and had a district attorney, he self-reported 240 pounds back in March. I was thinking about, you know, do we do any, what should we do with that, with that mugshot? And ultimately, where I kind of came down on is that's the face of an abuser. You know, that's the, the face, face of, of someone who evil. has been found by a jury to be liable of, of sexual abuse. This is somebody who... Uh, Trump's mugshot is the face of pure evil, the most evil man we have ever seen. Since Hitler, I, we have seen since Hitler, I am certain he is the Antichrist. Christopher Perez, Trump for prison. Is handed a trust fund, bankrupted everything, screwed people over his entire life, and then screwed over our incredibly proud and beautiful democracy here that used to be an inspiration to the world. And we're rebuilding that brick by brick here. But he is someone who has caused a great deal of pain and suffering 
and torture. And it's not funny. It's not a humorous moment. It's not something to spread or share except under the appropriate context of that individual is a treasonous traitor criminal who needs to be brought to justice and anybody who promotes or propagates his hate his lies needs to seriously reflect on their purpose and those who facilitate and spread his crimes need to similarly be brought to justice and held accountable and our commitment here at legal af and on the midas touch network is to provide as much resources as much information as much education and as much engagement as part of this beautiful pro-democracy community that you all created to help in that task. And if we could play a small part in that, Michael Popa, myself, and all of our contributors and all of those who work at the Midas Touch Network would be very grateful to play that small part. It's an honor to be here with all of you on this episode of Legal AF. Thank you for everyone who has become a member of our YouTube channel, everyone who has joined our Patreon patreon.com slash Midas Touch, where we have after-show podcasts for the Midas Touch Brothers show. Thinking about potentially launching another Patreon for Legal AF. We are doing one for Political Beatdown. I think it could be fun to have these different communities on Patreon. So that's something we are building. Make sure you go to MidasTouch.com as well. Thanks to all of your support in becoming members of our YouTube becoming members of our patreon again patreon.com slash midas touch gifting other people youtube memberships we've been able to take those resources and invest it into creating this website which is now getting so many views and so much engagement on par with some of the top websites out there we've been able to hire a whole staff and that's thanks to if you want to know hey where does what, what is the membership building you can see the bricks building uh, brick by brick here at the Midas Touch Network, and that's just one of the many examples of what of where we're investing in to increase our reach and to increase the reach of all of our, our reporting here. Thank you all so, so much. Subscribe right now to the Midas Touch Network. Make sure you download Legal AF wherever audio podcasts are available. All you do is you search Legal AF, hit subscribe. Listen to it when you're in the car, when you're walking at home or wherever. Make sure you subscribe to Legal AF on the podcast as well. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time on Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas
because it's all in here. All the good stuff for your body and mind. Sourced from nature. The superfoods in this drink really are the best. Protein, fiber, adaptogens, probiotics, and everything you can eat. But how does it taste? Actually, you can't. What you're about to hear, I think, is one of the most surreal clips I've maybe ever heard. This is a TV interview with the vice president. And what he's about to allege here is that the president of the United States, who he served with, was threatening to have him murdered. This is not an outtake from some overacted political thriller. This is a real interview that really happened. And the vice president here, of course, is Spiro Agnew. Agnew says he left because of a death threat from the White House. He quotes Nixon chief of staff Alexander Haig, urging him to resign with the words, the president has a lot of power. Don't forget that. Agnew writes that the remarks had a chill through his body. He took it as an innuendo that anything could happen. He might have, in Agnew's words, a convenient accident. An interpretation that even today, he refuses to disown. I didn't know what General Haig meant when he said anything may be in the offing. Things may get nasty and dirty. There's no doubt in my mind that these things are possible. I don't say it was a probability, but I do say it was a possibility. You think that there were men around Richard Nixon, either in the White House staff or in the official mechanism of the CIA who were capable of killing a vice president of the United States if they felt he was an embarrassment. I don't doubt that at all. Spiro Agnew didn't just make that allegation that one time. He made it repeatedly. He wrote about it in a book. He went on the record in a series of interviews stating that he believed President Richard Nixon might have him killed. You say that you were actually fearful that if you did not go along, President Nixon or General Haig, it's not quite clear, might have ordered you assassinated. Could you explain that? I was concerned, and uh, I think my concern at that time, based on my frame of mind after being seven months in a pressure cooker of uh, attempts to get me to resign office, gave me reason to be concerned. I brought along with me this testimony from the Select Committee on the Government Operations Committee involving uh, intelligence activities. Spiro Agnew pulls out at this point is a copy of a U.S. government report about the CIA's efforts to assassinate Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. He says what that report shows is that even though the CIA was never given a direct order from the president to kill Castro, they knew they were authorized to do it. He's making the point that even if Nixon never gave a direct order to kill him, to kill his vice president, it's conceivable the CIA would take its cues from Nixon and act anyway. It is possible for these things to happen. I've never said it was a probability that my life was in danger. I said it was one of the factors that crossed my mind and it was the straw that broke the camel's back after all the pressures that had been put on me. Spiro Agnew was alleging on national television that as a sitting vice president, he was possibly the target of a contract killing by the president. 
He said he even bought a gun at the time for his own protection. You acknowledge that you had fear at this time, but after you left office, did you ever go to the federal government to get a permit for a handgun? Yes. Why did you get that handgun, and what period was this? I think it was immediately after I left office. I got it because I still had some fears. Do I have a handgun? No, I've never carried the handgun. I thought it was sufficient that people would know I had the permit to carry one. This is the story that Spiro Agnew wanted people to believe about the circumstances in which he left office, that he was another one of Richard Nixon's victims. Agnew's tale of woe was that Nixon's inner circle, specifically Nixon's chief of staff, Al Haig, pressured him for weeks to resign, and when he refused to do it, they threatened his life and thereby forced him out when he otherwise wouldn't have left. Okay, maybe. <laughs> Seems nuts, but maybe. That said, there is another explanation for why Spiro Agnew stepped down when he did, and it does involve a three-letter federal agency, but not the CIA. It involves special agents from the IRS, who had been quietly and very diligently going through Vice President Agnew's past. Those agents and the Baltimore federal prosecutors working with them had already turned up the smoking gun evidence of the bribery and extortion scheme that Agnew had been running in Maryland and in the White House. But they also started turning up something else. Details about what exactly Spiro Agnew seemed to be doing with all that money he was making as a criminal. And that part of the investigation got into areas of Agnew's personal life that were maybe becoming a little uncomfortable for him. There were some personal expenses in there that um, pre-Monica Lewinsky and pre-all that we'd come across and some stories that we came across, uh, uh, which unlike uh, Ken Starr, I guess, we just said this is, this is not a part of the case. Ron Liebman and his fellow Baltimore prosecutors had stumbled upon an aspect of Agnew's life and crimes that may have had a nerve for the vice president. You know, these guys, they're all these personal peccadillas. You know, they have money and power and they do stupid things. And we, can, we, we, we came across uh, financial evidence of that and we heard some stories about that. One of them quite bizarre, but we, that wasn't part of the case. The Baltimore prosecutors never actually used the information they would start to uncover about Agnew's personal life. But Spiro Agnew was aware that the IRS was digging into it. And what it involved was evidence of what seemed like a secret life. Mistresses, sports cars, expensive gifts that never seemed to make it to Agnew's wife, Judy. Here's prosecutor Tim Baker. There was jewelry, too. Jewelry to Agnew? A woman's watch which Judy never got. What does that suggest? Death threats and handguns and CIA assassination plots sounded like a really cool reason to have to step down. But that probably wasn't the reason he had to step down. Spiro Agnew had carefully crafted this straight-arrow, moralistic, hardline public image as a man of honesty and virtue and conservative integrity. to fight, all of that would come crashing down around him. It was finally time to cut his losses and go away.
You're listening to Bagman. I'm your host, Rachel. Good evening. Washington was stunned today by the disclosure that Vice President Agnew is under criminal investigation by federal authorities in his home state of Maryland. What we were concerned was he, you know, he gets into court and he says, well, wait a minute, I changed my mind. And the people in the room, they gasped. It then became clear what this is about. Vero Agnew is in disgrace, fallen from power, a convicted criminal. Episode 6, A Disappearing Act. The Tonight Show will not be seen tonight so that we may bring you the following NBC News special report. Good evening. The country tonight is in the midst of what may be the most serious constitutional crisis in its history. The Saturday Night Massacre took place on October 20th, 1973. It was Richard Nixon in a fit of rage trying to end the investigation into Watergate that his own Justice Department was conducting. Nixon ordered his Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, to fire the special prosecutor who was leading that investigation. And when Richardson refused to do that and resigned himself instead, that sparked a true blue constitutional crisis. Agents of the FBI acting at the direction of the White House sealed off the offices of the special prosecutor, the offices of the Attorney General, and the offices of the Deputy Attorney General. That's a stunning development, and nothing even remotely like it has happened in all of our history. The Saturday Night Massacre is the signal moment in U.S. history. But many of the people who lived that history are still around to tell it. J.T. Smith was Elliot Richardson's top assistant at the Justice Department that day. I don't want to sound like a pretentious 29-year-old, but I was sorely vexed by events. And I had a lot of yellow legal pad notes that bore upon the stuff we've been talking about. I took my notes, put them in my briefcase, and walked out without being searched by the FBI. And I took them home and I was sufficiently paranoid about the direction of the country, I hid them in the attic of my house. What's sort of incredible to realize with hindsight, and what's never mentioned in the history books about that moment, is that Elliot Richardson and his team, when the Saturday Night Massacre happened, they were just coming off what may have been one of the most dramatic moments in the history of the U.S. Justice Department. The Saturday Night Massacre happened on October 20th, 1973. Just 10 days before that, on October 10th, Attorney General Elliot Richardson had single-handedly forced the resignation of the Vice President of the United States. It was October 9th when Elliot Richardson cut a high-stakes plea deal with Vice President Agnew's lawyers that would keep Agnew out of jail. But in exchange, he would offer his immediate resignation from office. Agnew's attorney, Marty London, helped reach that deal. I thought Elliot Richardson, in the end, made a deal because he saw this as a potential constitutional crisis and a national disaster. The deal was made. As controversial as it was, it was made. But what happened to Spiro Agnew in the last 24 hours of his vice presidency? It was this all-night sirens wailing, down-to-the-last-minute surprise sweat fest like you can't believe. 
In all of U.S. history, a vice president had never before been forced to resign. And at that moment, it wasn't really clear how to do it, logistically even. They had to dig through the archives to figure out the logistics, to figure out that the way a vice president technically resigns, the instrument of resignation, turns out it's through a letter submitted to the Secretary of State. Okay, so he'll resign to the Secretary of State. After figuring that out and finalizing the deal and setting a court date for the very next day, October 10th, Marty London and the rest of Agnew's defense team rushed back to the vice president's office to draft that resignation letter. Again, there was no precedent for what that should look like. What should the letter say? Nobody had written, thought about preparing for this. <laughs> We've got two hours to get out a resignation letter. I don't know how so many people got in that room. He had, the vice president had some guy who was like counselor to the vice president. Another guy was there. Another guy was in. Frank Sinatra had sent a lawyer. And now people are writing fantastic long explanations. One guy said, I'm resigning because the president is pushing me out. It's outrageous. Another guy writes the letters, I'm resigning because the press wanted me gone. And the other guy said, the Department of Justice wanted me gone. Like I said, it's the fucking Democrats. They want me gone. You know, it's, I mean, and, and we don't know it. It's an hour and a half later. The clock is ticking. The temperature in the room is, is 85. I said, I got it, guys. I got it. I was pat myself on the back here. I got it. What's your letter? It says, I hereby resign as vice president of the United States, sir. Respectfully. Everybody says, geez, that'll do it. That chaotic scene in the vice president's office, though, that was nothing compared to what was happening back in Baltimore that night at the U.S. attorney's office. The plea deal that had been reached with Agnew allowed the prosecutors to submit a detailed statement of evidence into the record, laying out what crimes exactly Spiro Agnew had committed. The payoffs as governor, the payoffs as vice president, everything the prosecutors had. What the prosecutors would ultimately draft was a 40-page long statement of evidence laying out Agnew's alleged crimes. But the night before the court date, it wasn't done yet. And these three Baltimore prosecutors, they stayed up all night that night, trying to get it finished in time. It was all written the night before we went to court. I mean, it was like this all-nighter thing, like it was back in college. We were exchanging drafts. I think maybe Timmy wrote, you know, these parts, and I wrote some parts, and Ron wrote some parts. We just started dictating, and drafts would go pages. It wasn't like complete drafts. Sections would go back and forth, back and forth marked up, retyped, marked up, retyped, and we were on a deadline. At like one or two in the morning, the Attorney General of the United States and Henry Peterson, I think, drive to Baltimore in the middle of the night, early in the morning, and sit in George Bell's office as we start feeding him these papers, which was extraordinary. This is the Attorney General of the United States at two in the morning in Baltimore. You know, on my best days, I wouldn't want to be in Baltimore at two in the morning. And I think at like 6 a.m., it's given to the U.S. Marshals who then, uh, we were later told at points on the Baltimore Washington Expressway were doing in excess of 85 miles an hour. And then it had to be to Agnew's lawyers by something like 8 a.m. in Washington. It was some terrible hour, and they got it there just in time. They got it there, in fact, five minutes late. 
this 40-page statement of evidence that was thrown together all night, overnight. It was rushed to D.C. with a sirens wailing police escort like it was the Holy Grail. For these prosecutors, it kind of was. Spiro Agnew was about to walk into court and plead to a felony count of tax evasion. And these prosecutors wanted the American people to know that he had not only been caught for tax evasion. We knew what it had to do. It had to bury so that the country could see this wasn't a witch hunt, to use a current expression, that there was a very substantial, solid case against it. It was a big issue for all of us, all of us, because what we certainly couldn't allow to happen would be for the vice president to plead Nola to a tax count and then to walk out and say, this is nothing. This is some little mistake I made. This is absolutely, these guys are liars. I made a little mistake on my tax returns. I've made amends. I'm going to pay back the money that I should have paid, and I'm going back to work. So the statement of evidence was finally ready. The vice president's resignation letter was finally ready. A 2 p.m. court date was set. But not a single soul in the country, except for the people directly involved, knew what was about to happen in that courtroom. Now, the press knew that there was going to be a hearing in court that afternoon, something to do with the wrangling over the Agnew case. But what the press thought the hearing was going to be about was them, about newspapers' efforts to quash these subpoenas that Spiro Agnew's lawyers had sent to various reporters to try to get them to reveal their sources. The press showed up that day ready to cover a hearing about that. All of the lawyers for the news organization showed up at the council's table ready to fight about those subpoenas to the reporters. And then, into the courtroom, walked the attorneys for the vice president. And they see us walking in, and we sit at the near table, and they look at us with hostility. I mean, I mean, sneering. We're just angry. And then two federal marshals come over to them, and they say, pick up all your papers, and move to the gallery and they're resistant but i mean these are federal marshals and the marshals do not explain why they just said clear this table and clear it now you can go stand in the back and they stand in the back and in walks to occupy that table elliot richardson george bell and some more of bell's assistants the bailiff makes an announcement you know, ladies and gentlemen proceedings about ready to begin this courtroom is going to be locked so if you can't stay, you have to get out. You have to leave now. Rachel Maddow, Bagman Podcast, Disappearing Nixon, Agnew, really big and surprising. Resigned. The resignation was ready. The 40-page statement of his crimes was ready. The deal was ready. And the country was about to have the whole thing sprung on them for the first time. The hearing was set to begin at 2 o'clock sharp. There was just one problem. It's now 2 o'clock, and I am sweating because... This is posted four years ago. <laughs> because at our table is me and Jay Topkins. And Judd Best is back in the clerk's office on the telephone. And it's two o'clock, and somebody from this play is missing. Everything was set. One of Agnew's lawyers was in the clerk's office at the court.
waiting to give the order over the phone to deliver Agnew's resignation letter, to transmit that letter to the Secretary of State as soon as the Vice President himself walked into the courtroom. It was all choreographed, each moment scripted and ordered for a very specific reason. And the time was now. But the Vice President of the United States was nowhere to be found. On the prosecution side, they had long feared that something just like this might happen. What we were concerned was he, you know, he gets into court and he says, no, wait a minute, I changed my mind. These are bogus charges. I don't know why I'm here. I'm the Vice President of the United States. I'm immune from prosecution. Marshal, could you unlock that door, please? I got to go. You know, we're dealing with the Vice President of the United States. We are being as careful as we can be. We're on tenterhooks, right? We want this done just so. It had to be done just so, or it wouldn't happen. At 2 o'clock, when the Vice President was the only one missing, it looked for a brief moment like it might not happen, even to Agnes lawyers. Listen, you want to know if I if I got a little nervous between 2 and 2.01? Because <laughs> the man was a minute late? The answer is, I was anxious. <laughs> I wouldn't say nervous, but I was anxious. I said, look, you know, if I have a 2 o'clock court date, I'm there at quarter of 2. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I can understand him not wanting to come into that courtroom. And I do get it. Him not wanting to come into that courtroom and sit there at that table for 15 minutes with all those people staring at the back of his neck. So I don't know. I assume that he, he may have been there at a quarter of two sitting in his car out at the curb looking at the watch and saying, okay, I better go in. And maybe my watch was a minute fast. Maybe he was there at two o'clock. I was anxious, but it never occurred to me that he was not going to do it. That wait for the vice president to show up, the question of whether or not he would show up, that hung in the air for a very tense moment. Until the courtroom doors swung open again. 201, exactly. It walks out quiet. And the people in the room, they gasped. It then became clear what this was about. It was a noticeable hush. Gasp. You know, it was a surprise to so many people in there. Court was locked. Agnew walks in. Judge gets on the bench. Bailiff, the law clerk, calls, you know, oye, oye, all rise. Everybody rises. Uh, so everybody sits down, and there's, you know, Spiro Agnew in his well-tailored suit and his nice haircut, about to plead uh, Nolo Contendere to a felony. Judge Best comes out of the clerk's office and says, I've just been on the telephone with the offices of the Secretary of State. They have received the Vice President's resignation letter, and ultimately uh, the judge accepts the plea, and he sentenced them to a fine and a sense of probation. And we walk out of the courtroom with the ex-Vice President of the United States. It was a stunning, uh, stunning, stunning development. For the first time in American history, a sitting vice president appeared in court to answer criminal charges. For the first time in American history, a vice president pled to a felony. And for the first time in American history, a vice president resigned his office in disgrace. Spiro Agnew arrived at the courthouse as the vice president. 
as he crossed the threshold into the courtroom, his resignation was simultaneously submitted. He left that courtroom minutes later as a convicted felon. He then spoke to the stunned reporters outside, who had had no idea that any of this was coming. I categorically and flatly deny the assertions that are made by the prosecutors with regard to their contention of bribery and extortion on my part. I will have nothing more to say at this point. I will make an address to the nation. Howdy, what's up, man? You guys are still alive. That's great. Good for you. But a million other Americans are not. A million other Americans are dead right now because of Trump. Fucking, let's have a Trump, blame Trump fest. Blame Trump fest. A million people are dead. Two or three mass shootings a day. Tripled. And it triples the violence, uh, the violent attacks and hate crimes and, and stuff. They go up 300%. After a little Trump pep rally. Okay, GOP in desperation. I babysit the modest touch YouTube playlist. My name's Christopher Price. Nice to meet you. How'd you do? <laughs> GOP in desperation. Republicans are so scared of new judge they exposed their latest scheme. Yeah, yeah. Five minutes ago. Can't find my, my um, speaker, man. Introducing the <laughs> There's more than one way to overturn someone's avowal. <laughs> we see the MAGA Republicans trying it all. My name is Tina Seidel the Midas Touch Network. Let's break it down. Now, the Wisconsin had a significant vote when it ended 15 years of conservative rule out of its Supreme Court with the election of Supreme Court Justice Jana Prosewitz. She ended that conservative rule. She was sworn in less than two weeks ago, and Republicans are already wanting to impeach her. Should that come as a surprise, despite the fact that she hasn't even done anything significantly? It shouldn't, because we see over and over again when an election comes out not in the way they want to instead of just trying to win the next election they see how they can overturn the will of the people to their own political backfire I believe now let's break this down a little bit more now we know the reason the one of the main reasons why she was elected to begin with was because of the fact that the majority of people were really upset about the Dodd vote over Overturning Roe v. Wade, and they wanted to protect a woman's right to govern her own body. And that sway of the will of the people helped elect her in ending again this conservative majority Supreme Court. Now, the Republicans have on the docket uh, a case that is of major significance to them, result because it. Um, is about gerrymandering. And gerrymandering is how they have in Wisconsin because the political breakdown in Wisconsin is about 50-50. But yet, in both of their houses, they the Republicans rule about two-thirds of the majority. So there is a disconnect among how the voters 
are actually politically aligned and how the political control is at the House. And this disconnect is, is enabled, basically, by the gerrymandering. And the Supreme Court in Wisconsin there is going to be taking a look at this gerrymandering, and this is putting fear into the GOP. GOP because they no longer have their conservative majority to back them up. Now, the Assembly Speaker there, Robin Faust, has is the one already calling for impeachment if Justice Janet does not recuse herself from this gerrymandering case. He says that she should be recusing herself because during her campaign, she said that she thinks that the current gerrymandering is against her values. She, though, also clarifies that she doesn't know how she would rule in any particular case. But it is that statement he is saying she has prejudged the case. I would love to hear, on a side note, of what he thinks about the fact that Justice Alito has already come out and said that the uh, his comments about the ethical rules, uh, there's crickets there, but is he calling for the recusal of Justice Alito? No, he's not. We know that. So the fact is, is that... Uh, you know, just we know, just we've seen Supreme Court justices in their confirmation hearings often get asked questions about topics that will be brought in front of the Supreme Court. Abortion was always one of them, but not the only one. There was other topics that are often asked related to, let's say, like presidential power, like how broad it should be. And the Supreme Court justices try to, or the potential Supreme Court justices, try to kind of sidestep the question. They try to uh, give an uh, answer without actually answering. And because in part, one, they don't want to, um, you know, not get confirmed, but also because they don't want to prejudge the case. And so that is what she was doing, in effect, by giving somewhat of an opinion, but also making it clear that she doesn't know how she would rule on any facts of any particular case. So her statement is not that different than statements that justices have made in confirmation hearings over time. But regardless of that, he has given her about two weeks, as we know, since her um, oath, to already talk about impeaching her. Do they have the votes? And that's the thing. They do have the votes. The Republicans in Wisconsin have much more than the simple majority they need in the House to bring an indictment. And they have the supermajority in their Senate to convict her. The only maybe backstop, as you would say, is the fact that the Democrat is, a, I mean, the governor is a Democrat. Tony Evers. He would be the one who have, would have to fill her vacancy. So if the Supreme, if the GOP did successfully impeach her, he would be able to replace her. I actually don't even know, uh, you know, replace her with another Democrat or another liberal or perhaps even a more liberal justice. So to what end would they, there would be really no a good consequence, let's say, for them if they were to successfully impeach her, except for the fact of harassing her and trying to intimidate her and trying to say that they control her. And that is really the GOP playbook that we have seen over and over again, or really the MAGA 
Republican playbook that we have seen over and over again. We've seen it with the constant threats of impeachment against Biden, despite the fact that after years of investigation, they can't find anything. The threats of impeachment against Merrick Garland, the attorney general, despite the fact that he might be one of the most measured attorney generals ever. Uh, I would love to see them actually find something, not because I want them to, but because I think that is impossible to find something. But they keep talking about it. And we see with DeSantis, has he's already replaced two prosecutors that were elected because they were Democrat. And this constant need to replace elected officials because they don't agree with their what the MAGA Republicans want them to do. And this backfires with the people. If they were to indeed do this in Wisconsin, I believe it would backfire politically because of the whole reason she was maybe elected to begin with was the fact that the people of Wisconsin, certainly the women of Wisconsin, didn't like their autonomy being taken away by the government. How do you think they're going to like their vote being ineffectual because of, again, the MAGA Republicans there in control. But this is the kind of threats and intimidation, even if not successful, that the MAGA Republicans are willing to take against duly elected officials and this duly elective Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. We don't need to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Only five dollars nine cents. The long sleeve shirt has been sold over eleven thousand times on Timu. Seven colors to choose. Sizes from XS to 3XL. Comfortable and soft. Free shipping and free returns in 90 days. Download and shop on Timu now. Saw this girl wearing some a cute outfit. Turned out to be Don's an idiot. Let me just be very clear when it comes to paying money. He is truly ago. an idiot. He has not learned yet that the last person that you want, three people you don't want to throw under the bus like that: your lawyer, your doctor, and your mechanic. Because one way or the other, you're going to go down the hill. And there'll be no breaks. Trump's allies and co-conspirators are starting to get real salty over the fact that Donald Trump is failing to provide any help with resources so they can fund their defense as they face indictments having to do with their efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. By the way, we've got some fun mugshots to get to later in this story, so stick around for that. But first, let's get to the details about what is currently happening, because the latest individual to come out swinging is Trump's former campaign lawyer, Jenna Ellis. You might, you might remember her. She was going around doing press interviews alleging that there was widespread voter fraud. The election was stolen from Donald Trump, even though she, along with the other co-conspirators, failed to show a shred of evidence to prove that point. But nonetheless, on X, Jenna Ellis wrote the following. I was reliably informed Trump isn't funding any of us who are indicted. Would this change if he becomes the nominee? 
why then not now? I totally agree. This has become a bigger principle than just one man. So why is it MAGA Inc. funding everyone's defense? Well, Jenna, 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 Jenna. I don't know how many times it was reported. Trump doesn't even pay his own lawyers. He doesn't pay his bills. No. Guy went bankrupt six times. Yeah. We didn't share stories like that just to memo. insult Trump, although that was part of it as well. Those were factual stories about who Trump is and what his character says about the man. So the idea that he would help you after you have implicated yourself in this criminal case having to do with overturning the presidential election is laughable to say the least. And yes, Jenna Ellis, along with uh, others who uh, surrounded Donald Trump and were part of these schemes to install fake electors, they have also been indicted in the Georgia case uh, having to do with the attempts to overturn the presidential election. Now, some Trump allies have even resorted to things like crowdfunding in order to pay for their legal defenses. Some of those who face charges in Georgia have been released on bond agreements, totaling as much as $100,000. And by the way, that's the low end of the scale when it comes to these bond agreements. Ellis, attorney uh, John Eastman, and former Justice Department official Jeff Clark have launched crowdfunding pages where they are collecting donations for what is described as their respective legal defense funds all three pages frame the beneficiaries as victims victims of politically motivated attacks let me just remind you all that there was literally a memo that was spread around by one of these co-conspirators that said fake electors fraudulent electors they knew they were fraudulent electors and described it as such in the memo, in the memo. But they want you to believe that they are victims of a political witch hunt. Sure. Okay. Now let's get to Rudy Giuliani, because this is uh, the most fascinating part of this story, if you ask me. Now, Giuliani appears to be getting rather desperate in coming up with the funds necessary to pay for his own legal defense. In fact, he has uh, listed his Manhattan apartment for sale, and uh, he's looking for any way to, you know, find the money necessary to avoid having to be represented by a public defender. And so Giuliani is facing some of these steepest debts as his cases pile up. Remember, it's not just the case having to do with overturning or attempting to overturn the presidential election. He's facing two criminal cases tied to January 6th, right? But on top of that, he's also facing uh, three defamation lawsuits related to comments he made uh, while seeking to overturn the election. Um, that includes two former voting equipment companies that he lied about. Uh, so Dominion Voting Systems and Smartmatic are the two companies uh, that are bringing defamation lawsuits against Giuliani and others. He's also facing disbarment proceedings in New York and Washington. And uh, he needs to secure attorneys for that situation as well. And in mm -hmm. recent proceedings in the cases, Giuliani's attorneys have noted his inability to pay for bills as well as the apparent cutting off of assistance from Trump's PAC after it initially provided him with $400,000 this year to help cover the cost of preserving his records as evidence in court cases. And uh, just check out this poor son of a bitch, as Jake would like to say, as he surrendered, uh, as he was on his way to surrender in Georgia for his role in attempting to overturn the election.
I'm going uh, to Georgia, and I'm feeling very, very good about it because I feel like I'm defending the rights of all Americans, as I did so many times as a United States attorney. People, people like to say I'm different. I'm the same Rudy Giuliani that took down the mafia, made New York City the safest city in America, reduced crime more than any mayor in the history of any city, anywhere. And I'm fighting for justice. I have been from the first moment I represented Donald Trump, and he's a man now been proven innocent several times. I don't know how many times he has to be proven innocent. They have to be proven to be liars. Actually, enemies of our republic. We're destroying rights, sacred rights. They're destroying my right to counsel, my right to be a lawyer. They're destroying his right to counsel. It's not accidental that they've indicted all his lawyers. Never heard of that before in America. <laughs> As goofy as Giuliani sounds there, and I will admit he sounds goofy as hell, what he's doing is he's trying to, in my opinion, mess with the jury pool, right? Because all you really need is one juror to be skeptical of these allegations of this case, despite all of the evidence. And so what they do is they try to make their case, make their defense publicly. And that's what Rudy Giuliani, in my opinion, is doing right there. Because he's lying, right? Donald Trump has not stood trial over his attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election yet. So when he says that Trump has been proven innocent over and over again, what is he referring to exactly? What, I mean, is he referring to the impeachment proceedings in which he was impeached? But the Republican-controlled Senate refused to convict him of the impeachment charges? Is that what he's referring to? Now, he, again, he's never been charged, and nor have the uh, co-conspirators in their efforts to overturn. Uh, they haven't stood trial, I should say, yet in their efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. So we'll see how it plays out. Uh, but I do want to show you uh, how feeling really, really good looks like because Giuliani's mugshot is essentially the largest broken window in American history. And I just, I gotta share it with you. Here it is. Uh, so he had his mugshot taken along with uh, the other co-conspirators, which we'll get to in just a moment. I'm gonna tease you with that. I wanna show you the mugshots in just a moment, but let's get back to Giuliani and what it could mean should Donald Trump fail to provide the resources that these individuals need for their defense. So just last week, CNN had reported that Giuliani traveled to Florida in April to ask Trump to help in covering his legal fees. Trump reportedly was not interested in that, which is no surprise. He's the kind of guy who doesn't really like to pay his bills. So someone coming to him a loyalist, a lapdog coming to him asking for help uh, in resources might have been laughable to him. And he later verbally agreed, allegedly, to help Giuliani with some of his bills without even committing to a specific amount. Now, Tim Parlatori, who is uh, the individual who represented initially Donald Trump in the Mar-a-Lago case and also a Giuliani associate in the January 6th case, pretty much issued a thinly veiled threat to Trump uh, during an interview. Here's what he said. He has no legal obligation to pay anybody's fees, but it's a good idea because here's what the Justice Department does. One of their standard tactics is to bleed the defendant and witnesses dry. And once they can bleed you dry to where all of your life savings have been sucked up by somebody like me, then you're far more pliable and willing to plead guilty to just about anything to stop the bleeding. 
So when you plead guilty, what does that usually mean? It means that you have taken a plea deal. And in that plea deal, you are cooperating with the investigation, with the prosecutors. And so this is his way of saying, you know, Trump, what are you doing? What are you doing? If you don't help them out, they're going to talk. They're going to fold. And he's not the only one making that case. Uh, clearly, Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, agrees with this assessment. Let's watch. Allegedly, from Rudy's own mouth, he claims that he has smoking gun um, information about Donald. Well, if that's true, I strongly suggest Rudy, and I don't have to suggest anything to Rudy. He's the one that you know, basically came up with this concept of strong arming. Ready to start eating healthier? Meet Kachava. Kachava is the world's healthiest all-in-one meal shake. A complete meal in seconds to keep you going for hours. It's made with over 70 plant-based superfoods and nutrients. Strong arming when he was the head of the Southern District of New York. He's going to need to speak, and he's going to need to speak before everybody else does. You think Trump's making a mistake by by not paying for more of Rudy Giuliani's legal fees? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you don't pay for his legal fees, he's going to talk. You want him to talk? I mean, I thought mobsters know how this stuff works, right? <laughs> okay, anyway, one little part of that interview with Michael Cohen that I couldn't help but want to share with you all is... Something very truthful that he said in regard to Giuliani's legal services and how questionable they were to begin with. Let's watch that. What do you think about Rudy Giuliani? I mean, he. what we are told from our reporting is that he went down there with Bob Costello, his attorney, twice in late April. And I was told by sources they basically told Trump it was in his best interest to pay for Rudy Giuliani's legal fees. He paid a small fee, but, but not the seven figures that he's dealing with. Or any of the money that Donald allegedly owed to Rudy from past performance, which, again, <laughs> it's not the job that Rudy did for Donald. I don't know if I would pay either, but at the end of the day, when your life is basically hanging on the line, once again, you just don't really want to throw another lawyer under the bus. <laughs> Look, it's not lost on me that Michael Cohen, who clearly is very salty about Donald Trump this entire situation, spent time behind bars for being a lapdog for Donald Trump and essentially implicating himself in criminality in regard to the hush money payments, which Trump is now also indicted for in uh, you know New York uh, by Alvin Bragg. But uh, it also seems that Trump is starting to get the message uh, because the New York Times national correspondent Shane Goldmacher uh, reported the following. He posted this on X. New Trump will headline a $100,000 per person fundraiser for Rudy Giuliani's legal defense on uh, September 7th. My colleagues uh, Maggie Haberman and Ben Protest uh, previously reported Trump had agreed to help attend Giuliani legal money fundraiser. And that's exactly uh, what's going to happen here. Apparently, this is going to take place at the Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey. 
And the idea that anyone would be willing to spend $100,000 just to sit for a roundtable discussion with Trump and Giuliani and share a meal with them at a fancy steakhouse blows my mind. But there are people out there who might do it. I'm curious to see how much money Giuliani is going to be able to raise from this effort. Uh, but, you know, when you look at the millions upon millions, tens of millions of dollars that hundreds of millions of dollars, actually, that Trump has been able to fundraise for himself, I can understand why he doesn't want to share that money with all of the co-conspirators who are now defend, who now have to defend themselves in court because he's got his own legal fees and he's also running a presidential campaign. He doesn't want to expend all these resources to help his friends or people that he liked to use for his own purposes. But these people very likely do have dirt on Trump. And if he doesn't want them to fold, he's got to do right by them. But he doesn't do right by them. He doesn't do right by the many people that he uh, persuaded and incited into rioting uh, on the nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, of course. And I'm wondering what it's going to take for people who like him, for people who believe in him, for people who support him to actually see this man for who he is, to see this man for the lack of character that he demonstrates on a regular basis. Donald Trump demands loyalty from others, but he never practices loyalty toward anyone else. He doesn't feel the need to be loyal to anyone. He doesn't feel the need to stick his neck out and, and try to defend or root for anyone. Donald Trump looks out for Donald Trump. And if he's willing to do that, to the people who are closest to him, to the people who have essentially served as loyalists to him for so long. What do you think he actually feels about the American people, the individuals who support him and vote him into office? Just something to think about, something to consider, right? Because I think that loyalty for some, including myself, by the way, is an important thing. I would do anything to protect my friends, my family, the people I love. Anyone who sticks their neck out for me, I've got their back. I think that that shows character. And I know that among conservatives, loyalty, especially for the ones you love, especially for the ones who look out for you, is incredibly important. Just take a good hard look at who Trump is, how he treats those closest to him, including his own wife, by the way. And ask yourselves, is this the guy who has the character necessary to lead the country? I know some think he does. I just completely disagree. But let's take a look at the mugshots of people who believed in him and are now stuck with massive legal bills as they defend themselves in court in Georgia. Let's take a look at these mugshots. Of, let's just yeah. put them up. There you have Sidney Powell. Gotta say, I really do enjoy watching Sidney Powell, uh, you know, essentially uh, get arrested, have her mugshot taken. I mean, she spread some of the most vicious, ridiculous lies. But there's more. Uh, we've got Jenna Ellis, who I don't know if she thought that this was a um, headshot situation rather than a mugshot situation, but she's smiling. Obviously not smiling when it comes to uh, Trump's unwillingness to help with her legal expenses. And then John Eastman actually was the first to have his mugshot taken and released to the public. Now, Donald Trump is set to report to the Fulton County Courthouse tomorrow. And based on how Fonnie Willis has treated this situation and her unwillingness to provide any preferential treatment to these individuals, I think it's safe to say that we are going to see a Trump mugshot tomorrow. No promises. I don't know for sure, but she's not playing around. And honestly, I got to respect that because I do have a problem with how our criminal justice system treats the elites versus everyone else. 
I don't care if you are a member of Congress. I don't care if you're the president of the United States. Everyone should be treated equally based on the laws that we have. And if that district attorney in that courthouse is known for doing what they've been doing with these co-conspirators, having them, you know, arrested, uh, going through the bond agreements, taking the mugshots, making the mugshots public, they should treat everyone equally. There shouldn't be any preferential treatment. So we'll see what happens tomorrow. We'll see if they actually do uh, release a mugshot of Donald Trump. But he is set to report to court. This is a very expensive legal defense that he's going to have to deal with. And this is just one. So my point. When I was listening, just to the analysis, I thought you were Rachel Maddow, exclamation point. (laughs) And content. of jobs you could definitely work for major network if you wanted to all they need to do is your hair And then you are ready for prime time. Very pretty. I said you're a very smart lady. I thought you were Rachel Maddow at first by voice in your <coughs> in your analysis, which is super great job. That's superb. Speaking of jobs, I think you could work for a major network if you wanted to. All they need to do is your hair, LOL. And you are ready for primetime, girl. <clears throat> of the trials that he's going to have to deal with. Thanks for watching The Young Crooks. I really appreciate it. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. You'll get to interact with us more. There's live chat emojis. Ooh, live chat emojis. Clip of the day. This is three days ago. I had like a moth or something. I really like this. It was like a 
Kind of pounding in my head, but like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It feels like uh, there's maybe an insect in my ear or something, I don't know. Kind of like pulses, as if it's my heartbeat. Okay, come on. I hope I don't have an insect in my ear. <clears throat> Laying eggs, oh my god, that would be a fucking horrible. Okay, Judge Eileen Cannon grants unusual request by Donald Trump's co-defendant in the Mar-a-Lardo document case. Of course! Because you guys won't fucking, like... Did you expect... Somehow, comma, good and lawful decisions. Lawful, not logical, lawful. Your political action committee, make use of that, exclamation point, call for her immediate removal. Attention Jack Smith. Remove Capital Siege section, not C section. Capital Siege section, problem with Judge Kenneth Topper. I said, of course, it is an insanity to expect any different that Judge Cannon would somehow start making sound and lawful decisions. Like I've been telling you, Midas Mighty. Call the, call in the Justice Department. What the fuck? Is there a bug in my ear? It's like... Midas. Maybe I'll put some like, oh man. Peroxide in there, it might kill it. 
another bug in there. Shit. Take a letter. Okay, so let's go to Midas Touch. You guys still there? Oh my gosh, yes, you are. Shout out to KAMP State of Radio at the University of Evanston. And KB1 Takoyaki, Time Radio, Time Radio. She did not hold back. Fed up, MSNBC host torches Trump after a mugshot released with musty takedown. Yeah. Come out with your hands up, Trump. You're under arrest. We got you surrounded. Ha <laughs> ha. Surrender, motherfucking traitor, terrorist, and thief. Big orange blob. Get your ass out here. Put your hands up. Here's a warning shot. And the defund the police Democrats have turned our once great cities into cesspools of bloodshed and crime. <laughs> There's never been anything like it. Here's my plan to restore law and order in our cities. Officially, as of now, Donald Trump is under arrest in the state of Georgia. Uh, we had confirmation earlier that he had entered the jail, and as of right now, former President Trump is in custody. He has been arrested. In the wake of Trump's mugshot doing the rounds, you had some good takes. And just what a vile, racist, anti-democracy he was. This is the buffooning of the American president. Yeah, this should not up. be happening. Some laughable well, takes. Only $200,000. Dying for a good country again. We're a failing nation. We're a failing country. And they're absolutely... You know, they're looking fucking forward to getting back us, to what man. we have. I have the safest borders, the biggest the tax cuts. They're still trying to fucking destroy this country. So well. Our military was great. And some calls for what can only be presumed to be a civil war from the party of law and order, mind you. Alrighty. Do you have concern for, for the country as I do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think uh, those who are conducting this travesty and uh, creating this two-tier system of justice I, mean, I want to ask them what the heck do, do you want us to be in civil war because that's what's going to happen we're not going to keep putting up with this and eric i like that you suggested that we need to get angry we do need to rise up we need to and get take angry our the man back. is fucking incarcerated now, i would um i would say the rnc though that's what's lacking when it comes to collective anger that can be healthy and it can be useful. Uh, Where is the RNC? They hold the purse strings to the party. They hold they hold the funds that could be helping out in this situation. They have the platform, and yet they're too timid. A bunch of freaking rhinos running the thing. So the RNC, they better get their stuff together or uh, have to ask them too. What do they want as an outcome of this civil war? I would hope that people understand what time it is. I mean, we are in a cold civil war with the un-American left. They have decided that they will use the quote-unquote legal system as a weapon against political opponents. Vincent nonsense, as she does so well, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow was on hand to cut through the BS and provide some clarity on what 
was one of the lowest points in modern day American history. First ever mugshot of a former president. I mean, the closest you have to go back to 1872 where the arrest of President Ulysses S. Grant took place. Over the last few days, we have seen mugshots released as the 19 defendants in the Fulton County case have started turning themselves in for booking. Uh, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman, one after the other. Um, the Fulton County Sheriff had promised that former President Trump would be treated like anybody else, that he would get a Fulton County mugshot like everyone else. Well, just now, in the last few moments, the sheriff has released that mugshot from former President Trump. And so I'm saying we should slow down here just for a second because... This is serious stuff for the nation, for who we are as a country. We have never before had a mugshot of a United States president, current or former. And now we do. Here it is. Criminal defendant and former president Donald J. Trump presumed innocent until proven guilty mm -hmm. in accordance with the rule of law for his sake and for ours. Uh, whatever you think of the photo, this is not something to take lightly. Face of Our constitutional pure fucking evil, that's what it is. It's a very basic concept of rule by law, not rule by man. Rule by mob. A constitutional standard under which a president is still just like a, a citizen. Mob. And all citizens have equal standing before one system of law which applies equally to everyone. The rule of law and the health of our democracy depend not just on the conduct of this criminal case, but on our ability as citizens to take this with the sort of heft that it needs to look at this and see it as american citizens who prize country above politics and who ourselves prize the law rather than the fate of any one man we have never been here before or we are forced to consider an american president as a suspected and indicted felon um but here we are it's remarkable itself that we have had three previous um arrests uh, and indictments of Trump, all and none of them produced a mugshot, but Fulton County just decided to do it. That itself is a remarkable thing. It took us 234 years to get here. Uh, there's reason to believe it'll take another 234 before we see another mugshot of a former <laughs> president of the United States. Uh, this this well, is something that only that Donald Trump done, like, was able to achieve with his presidency. Take to over, bring the presidency take to over again. You guys fucking let him. Creating the around let him run. To be proud of. Fuck you. No this Trump on the ballot. Disgrace. A historic anomaly in regards to how he has discarded rule of law and practices that have gone by generations. Well, hustling and those lights that are there, which was not the sort of thing that you usually see on an airport tarmac. Um, we did think that this is a possibility tonight. We didn't know for sure that it was going to happen, but it looks like Trump may decide to make public remarks before he gets back on his big private plane and flies back to New Jersey. Uh, if he does that, we're not going to take those remarks live, but we will cover them for their newsworthiness. As we've said in the past, there is a uh, cost to us as a news organization of knowingly broadcasting untrue things. And given his previous remarks on the subject that we are almost sure he will speak on, um, we will not carry those remarks live. And you can be mad at us about it. We can take it. We're big. Um, but we'll cover it for newsworthiness. We'll turn it around and let you know what he says um, after he has made those remarks. But that's what we think. Is this is Terra Incognito. Since and we have been on the air, I, we've crossed another never-happened-before moment for the American presidency, which is we've just, for the first time ever in U.S. history, um, had words um, from the New York Times that this, this president, um, as is now confirmed by NBC News, has chosen his bail bondsman. It's just 
bizarre, but uh, Trump is going to use a commercial bail bondsman, Charles Shaw, foster bail bonds in Georgia to post his $200,000 bond. This has been confirmed Michael by the Cohen bondsman had himself. Michael $500 bail. Um, Trump will pay the bondsman 10% of his bail amount, so his bond was set at $200,000. He'll pay him $20,000 cash, presumably in a, out of a big bag marked with a dollar sign on it, with a bandit mask on, um, and that should expedite his, his release. Rachel, these yeah. sentiments were echoed by colleague Joy Reid, who reminded her viewers how Trump has evaded accountability his entire life. Meanwhile, black and brown people across the country have found themselves at the mercy of a two-tiered justice system. There are all those backdoor exits for the likes of Trump. So to even see his mugshot, well, that was a form of justice. You know, I can tell you for me, it is, you know, when I moved back to New York, um, one of the mugshots that, that, that sit with me, I mean, I still remember that he made five teenagers my age take a mugshot yeah that he wanted them yeah. not just take a mugshot he wanted them dead. executed with that case. and this was the central park five case the exonerated five you know and, and they were my age yeah. so as a teenager living in new york I, i've said it before this reason i never watched the apprentice because he to me signified the rich white guy in manhattan that absolutely hated and despised me that hated and despised my cousins my friends everyone we knew that that, that called us wilding just because we were in the park that said we can't be free to walk around in the street that said when patrick dorismond got killed by an off-duty police officer he's no choir boy and he was literally, I mean, was no altar boy. He was literally an altar boy. Giuliani said that. And so people like Giuliani and people like Trump persecuted black and brown people in New York. It's what they did for fun. It's what they did for pleasure. They enjoyed it. They enjoyed lording over people who had nothing, who had no million dollar lawyers, who couldn't change lawyers at the drop of a hat and get a different hip hop lawyer the next day when they were tired of one, who couldn't go out and make their case on you know, Fox or on Newsmax, who had nothing and who Donald Trump lorded his everything over and still people who looked like them put him in rap songs. It was an indignity to me that something I loved, a culture I loved, would lionize that and so to me this is justice the fact that manhattan didn't give him a mugshot i thought was offensive i thought that the feds and we already know what he looks like he was the president of the united states okay offensive everyone else had to take him this case and i think fonnie wills is a hero she is a national hero because she, more than any prosecutor in this country, and I respect Jack Smith and I respect all the prosecutors that are doing this, she's the only one who said these wealthy, powerful, privileged men and women are just American citizens. And when they break the law, they will take that picture. While the same people who touted Trump as president of law and order will be lining up to put his mugshot on flags, Democrats are doing what they have continued to do through all of this, work for the American people, unlike the cult leader who tried to overthrow our very democracy, only to realize that, well, he can't pay his way out of this one. Hey, Midas Mighty, love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. She didn't need no Instagram. She just uses Instagram. I see Trump co-defendant gets very desperate with latest federal court filing. Is this going to be Mark Meadows, maybe? If you don't hit a jackpot,
in some ways conduct must be connected to those duties and if you think that it was wrongful conduct well decide that when you hear the case but this low threshold almost presumption should be given in his favor so a very the, the tactical argument wasn't even so much we should win the case that was what i noticed it was just at this stage whether the case should go to federal court don't don't worry about the merits. Just it's a low threshold. Karen, what was your overall take on this violence? So just for, for we have a lot of international viewers. There's a lot of people who reach out to us just to kind of make some sense out of what's going on here before I give you my take. So, you know, we got the United States Constitution, the federal government and the Department of Justice that. Uh, has local U.S. attorney's offices all over the country. In addition to that, we have state courts, right? And each state has its own set of laws and its own courts. So there's, it can get very confusing for people. I don't understand why are some things prosecuted by the state and some things prosecuted federally. So, for example, the Jan 6 case is being prosecuted both, right? Donald Trump is being prosecuted by Jack Smith under federal laws for the for similar conduct that Bonnie Willis is bringing a state court case for the same thing. And so that can get kind of confusing. And as a result, there is this, uh, this statute, really, it's um, 18 United States Code, Section 1442, that basically says, you know, when it comes to federal officers, we'll, we'll handle it, right? And so cases get removed from state court to federal court. And a really easy example would be a federal law enforcement officer like the FBI executing a search warrant. Um, uh, and gets into a gunfight and ends up shooting and killing somebody, that's for the federal government to handle because he's a federal officer, he's doing his job as a federal officer, and he's going to say he has federal defenses there. Um, but, you know, and that's to, pre to prevent local local laws and local, you know, rogue prosecutors, if you will, to go after federal agents. It's kind of like, let's take care of our own. But in a situation like the one that we have here, it's a little more complicated, right? Because it's the president of the United States who wears two hats. He wears a hat as the president, which is when he is a federal officer, okay? But he also wears another hat at times, and that's when he runs for office. And when he's running for office, he's a candidate. He's not president. And, and the law requires there to be a separation. You have a separation of staff. You have a separation of resources. You have a separation of money. And there's something called the Hatch Act that you talked about. That's a law, a federal law, that anyone who's been an employee of the federal government or even of the state government, the Hatch Act didn't apply to me when I was a state court prosecutor. But there were other laws, state laws that were similar. I couldn't, for example, help my boss do anything regarding a campaign uh, during business hours, right? I couldn't use the phone, the government, my office phone. I couldn't use office printer, paperwork, resources, not even my time because I was being paid uh, by taxpayer dollars. If I wanted to help at all, it had to be shown on my personal time, my personal computer, my personal email. I didn't help at all, by the way, um, but, but that's, everybody knows that's the law. So that's, that's what we're talking about here. So, so really when you, you look at, and I thought Bonnie Willis's um, 
you know, when, when Mark Meadows said, I want to, I would chief of staff, I was working for the president. I was a federal officer because I'm chief of staff. And I was doing my job uh, working for the president, doing things like making phone calls, scheduling meetings. I mean, that's what the chief of staff does. Um, and so what Fannie Willis in her reply or her response to that motion, that was very powerful. That basically said, you know, you, you were not a federal officer at the time. You were working for candidate Trump. You weren't working for President Trump. You were doing things to help his presidency, that there's no presidential duty uh, to try and, um, you know, put, put forth fake electors or even alternative electors. If you, even if you were, you know, you, you were trying to, um, you know, trying to preserve the opportunity to submit uh, Trump electors in various states. So that's a campaign function, not a, not a, uh, function of your duty as a federal officer. And P.S. Mark Meadows, by admitting all of this in your paperwork, you basically are confessing to violating the Hatch Act, right? So I thought that was pretty powerful. And again, it just was a little head-scratching to me because George Terwilliger, Mark Meadows' lawyer, I know him by reputation. I've never met him or worked uh, against him. He has the reputation of being a very good lawyer. And the other thing that was a head-scratcher for me for, for months now uh, is I don't understand what role Mark Meadows is playing in the in the Jack Smith prosecution because Mark Meadows is all over the place, right? He's intimately involved in so many of the uh, the schemes that everyone, including myself, thought, you know what, he must be prosecuting because not only in cooperating with Jack Smith because not only is he not uh, he's not named in the indictment as an unindicted co-conspirator, he's not at all referred to in any way. And so that is a signal. If you're that entrenched in a criminal activity and you're not in there as an unindicted co-conspirator, he must be cooperating. But that what was the head scratcher is then how did he get prosecuted in, in Georgia? You know, it makes no sense. If, if you're aware, like George Terwilliger, you would have negotiated cooperation in both. You would have negotiated uh, with both DA's offices, right, both the special counsel as well as Fonnie Willis. And so that made everyone wonder, okay, that why is he not? What, you know, George Terwilliger would not have missed that. So maybe he's not cooperating. Maybe Mark Meadows is not cooperating. But this reply brief that we're talking about, I think, adds some clarity to all of what we just are talking about. So number one, uh, what George Terwilliger, on behalf of Mark Meadows, says is the Hatch Act is a red herring. Because any dispute regarding what the job description was, whether it was for candidate or President Trump, that's not a reason to remove or not remove. That will be dealt with once it's removed. Right. That should, that's a question for federal court. That's not a removal question. So he also says, look, I don't stop, you know, Mark Meadows doesn't stop assisting the president because he's doing something personal or political. You know, certain White House personnel have to travel with the president wherever he goes, even if it's on a campaign rally, because, you know, he the job isn't a nine to five job as president. It happens at all hours, day, day and night. And so if you're with the president all the time performing your presidential duties, there's going to be a murkiness and bleeding into one.
one or the other. And he gives the example of a military official, uh, a pilot on Air Force One. He says, look, he doesn't cease to be a military official when he flies, flies the president to an unofficial event because, you know, the president is doing official work in between these unofficial events. And so he said the same goes for the chief of staff. I don't, you know, he doesn't take off his official hat just because the president takes off his. So I thought that was really interesting uh, argument. He says as long as he had a good faith belief that his actions were part of his official duty, that he is immune from state prosecution, even if his belief was mistaken. So that makes sense. Why George Terwilliger didn't or didn't arrange to um, have some kind of immunity deal with Fannie Willis or cooperation, because he thinks he is so confident in his position that Mark Meadows is immune from prosecution based on the fact that there is something called the supremacy clause, okay? This is, um, the supremacy clause is in the Constitution of the United States, and it basically says federal law trumps state law. And uh, it's, it's very clearly in there, and it says the Constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land, and it says any suits, like lawsuits or, or prosecutions under state law against federal officials carrying out their executive duties that they will be immune uh, if there's a nexus between furthering the federal policy and anything that can be reasonably characterized as complying within the full range of federal law. So it kind of gets uh, mixed together, these two concepts, the um, removal concept and the supremacy clause concept. But it is a low bar, as you said. And as I didn't think he had a case until I read his reply brief. And I think it, I think it's a horse race. I'm not, I think ultimately the judge will, will, will side on the, the you know, put it, put it on the side of, look, he was clearly being candidate Trump at the time, and you were helping him, look, just because he's president and you're chief of staff, it, you couldn't go out, and I'm making this up now, you couldn't go out and rob a bank together, or you couldn't go out and, and you know, shoot someone together, right? That, that wouldn't make you either immune from state court prosecution or cause for you to, for removal, because that's so far outside the bounds. We're listening to Legal AF. Karen Friedman of Email. I didn't help at all, by the way. Um, but if you don't hit a jackpot of 10 trillion coins within 10 spins, just delete the app. This is a brand new Vegas style slots game with super high payout. You can hit a jackpot. Personal computer, my personal email. I didn't help at all, by the way. Um, but but that's everybody knows that's the law. So that's that's what we're talking about here. So so really, when you you look at and I thought Bonnie Willis's, um, you know, when when Mark Meadows said I want to, I'm chief of staff. I was working for the president. I was a federal officer because I'm chief of staff, and I was doing my job, uh, working for the president, doing things like making phone calls, scheduling meetings. I mean, that's what the chief of staff does. Um, and so. What Fannie Willis in her reply or in her response to that motion, that was very powerful. That basically said, you know, you you were not a federal officer at the time. You were working for candidate Trump. You weren't working for President Trump. You were doing things to help his presidency. That there's no presidential duty uh, to try and. Um, you know, put, put forth fake electors or even alternative electors. If you, even if you were, you know, you, you were trying to, um, you know, trying to preserve the opportunity to submit 
uh, Trump electors in various states. That that's a campaign function, not a not a uh, function of your duty as a federal officer. And P.S. Mark Meadows, by admitting all of this in your paperwork, you basically are confessing to violating the Hatch Act, right? So I thought that was pretty powerful. And again, it just was a little head scratching to me because George Terwilliger, Mark Meadows' lawyer, I know him by reputation. I've never met him or worked. Uh, against him, he has the reputation of being a very good lawyer. And the other thing that was a head scratcher for me for for months now uh, is I don't understand what role Mark Meadows is playing in the in the Jack Smith prosecution because Mark Meadows is all over the place, right? He's intimately involved in so many of the uh, the schemes that. Everyone, including myself, thought, you know what, he must be prosecuting because he's cooperating with Jack Smith. Because not only is he not, uh, he's not named in the indictment as an unindicted co-conspirator, he's not at all referred to in any way. And so that is a signal, if you're that entrenched in a criminal activity and you're not in there as an unindicted co-conspirator, he must be cooperating. But that what was the head scratcher is then how did he get prosecuted in in Georgia? You know, it makes no sense. If, if you're a lawyer like George Terwilliger, you would have negotiated cooperation in both. You would have negotiated uh, with both DA's offices, right, both the special counsel as well as Bonnie Willis. And so that made everyone wonder, okay, that why is he not... What, you know, George Terwilliger would not have missed that, so maybe he's not cooperating. Maybe Mark Meadows is not cooperating. But this reply brief that we're talking about, I think, adds some clarity to all of what we just are talking about. So number one, uh, what George Terwilliger, on behalf of Mark Meadows, says is the Hatch Act is a red herring because any dispute regarding what the job description was, whether it was for candidate or President Trump, that's not a reason to remove or not remove. That will be dealt with once it's removed, right? Right. That should, that's a question for federal court. That's not a removal question. So he also says, look, I don't stop, you know, Mark Meadows doesn't stop assisting the president because he's doing something personal or political. You know, certain White House personnel have to travel with the president wherever he goes, even if it's on a campaign rally, because, you know, he the job isn't a nine to five job as president. It happens at all hours, day, day or night. And so if you're with the president all the time, performing your presidential duties, there's going to be murkiness and bleeding into one or the other. And he gives the official uh, pilot on Air Force One. He says, look, he doesn't cease to be a military official when he flies, flies the president to an unofficial event because, you know, the president is doing official work in between these unofficial events. And so you know, the same goes for the chief of staff. I don't, you know, he doesn't take off his official hat just because the president takes off his. So... I thought that was really interesting uh, argument. He says as long as he had a good faith belief that his actions were part of his official duty, that he is immune from state prosecution, even if his belief is mistaken. So that makes sense why George Terwilliger didn't or didn't arrange to um, have some kind of immunity deal with Tony Willis or cooperation, because he thinks he is so confident in his position that Mark Meadows is immune from prosecution based on the fact that there is something called the supremacy clause, okay? This is, um, the supremacy clause is in the Constitution of the United States, and it basically says federal law trumps 
state law. And uh, it's, it's very clearly in there. And it says the Constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land. And it says any suits, like lawsuits or, or prosecutions under state law against federal officials carrying out their executive duties, that they will be immune uh, if there's a nexus between furthering the federal policy and anything that can be reasonably characterized as complying within the full range of federal law. So it kind of gets um, mixed together, these two concepts, the uh, removal concept and the supremacy clause concept. But it is a low bar, as you said. And as I didn't think he had a case until I read his reply brief. And I think I think it's a horse race. I'm not I think ultimately the judge will, will, will side on the the you know, put it, put it on the side of, look, he was clearly being candidate Trump at the time, and you were helping him, look, just because he's president and you're chief of staff, that you couldn't go out, and I'm making this up now, you couldn't go out and rob a bank together, or you couldn't go out and, and you know, shoot someone together, right? That, that wouldn't make you either immune from state court prosecution or cause for you to, for removal, because that's so far outside the bounds of your, of your job description, even though, yes, you're federal officers, and that's clearly personal. So, you know, that's one extreme uh, version of this. So I do think that ultimately Judge Jones, federal Judge Jones, will say, look, this was candidate Trump. You, Mark Meadows, decided to um, blur the lines between candidate Trump and President Trump, and um, and therefore, uh, you know, I don't think it qualifies with it. It's not within the color of your job description because you weren't supposed to help him try to steal an election, if you will. Um, but if he rules the other way, I honestly, I could see it. You know, I could make the argument the other way too. So. Uh, you know, but so it's a horse race. That that's what I think. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what Judge Jones does. Ultimately, it seems that this brief is more intended, though, for the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a right-wing court of appeals that oversees the district court uh, in Georgia. I think Judge Jones recognizes that as well, and. You know, depending on the panel that you draw in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal, if you get two Trump judges and a George W. Bush judge or two Trump judges and one Obama judge, it shouldn't be that way. But unfortunately, I could uh, I, I don't even think it's tie goes to the runner here. I mean, I, I think that Bolton County District Attorney Fawny Willis has the better argument here. This conduct was outside the scope. This was, again, a criminal enterprise. And at no point, as alleged in the indictment, were you acting as a chief of staff? These are not, this is not conduct that a chief of staff engages in. However, my, my broader concern is what the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals ultimately is going to do. And I could see them just basically saying, look, we said it's a low threshold. All of these bigger issues, we'll decide them at the motion to dismiss stage. But we'll give you the presumption, Mark Meadows, given your role, that it goes to federal court. So there's an evidentiary hearing, though. And as evidentiary hearings uh, are supposed to do, there's going to be evidence. <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see. See, it'll be interesting to see 
what evidence Mark Meadows is going to put on. His co-defendants are not going to um, be, they're all going to be invoking the fifth. I know the evidence Fonnie Willis is going to be putting on. So you can't just, you know, you can't just make the arguments. Uh, the arguments have to be tethered to admissible evidence when there's an evidentiary hearing like this. Karen, any final words before we go? You know, if it does get removed to federal court, then there will be cameras in the courtroom, which will be a big shame because, you know, it would be good, I think, for people to be able to have some transparency and to see the evidence in, in this case. Well, the good news is, though, too, that Ken Chesbrough, Trump's lawyer, current co-defendant, asked for a speedy trial, and uh, Fawny Willis was ready for it. She said, let's do it. October 23rd, Judge McAfee said, let's do it. So there's going to be a trial of one of the co-defendants with cameras in the courtroom with all of this evidence going before the public. Um, Sidney Powell asked for a speedy trial, too, just now, by the way. It just came out. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis uh, is ready. We'll cover that on another hot take as well. Um, thanks, everybody, for watching. Check out MidasTouch.com for all the breaking news. That's MidasTouch.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Legal AM podcast. Have a great day. Hey, Midas, Midas. Maybe that's to keep, if they ask for a speedy trial, it's probably, I, I'm guessing, cut down on the expenses of having fucking lawyers so that people have destroyed their lives did it to themselves and that's really hard to do it to yourself just you no one you no one else to do it to yourself You do it to yourself. Hanging out the sympathy. Hanging out the fifteenth floor. Change the locks three times. Stuck on reeling through the door. Working on getting my um, lemon, lemon, tea, lemon black tea as uh, perfect as possible. It's gonna be um, you know, diluted. <laughs> like it's gonna have enough darkness in there. They call it hong cha, Chinese red tea. Isn't that interesting? Yes, it is interesting. <laughs> Y'all don't care about China or what's going on in the rest of the world. Half of the world is just weird. It's like there's, we don't even talk about China. Never talk about China except for trade. Except for China, uh, Trump's uh, fucking trade wars with China. It's killed, uh, killed it, killed the farmers in this country. Should talk about that. I'm planning to do, uh, you know, if I ran as a Republican. Introducing the filters. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas. This is Michael Cohen's powerful words for Trump.
co-defendants. Touch Network, Michael Cohen warned Donald Trump's co-defendants directly. This is what is going to 21 minutes ago. to you. Mm-hmm. Look what happened to me. Remember when Michael Cohen testified before Congress? A lot of these members of Congress were there asking Cohen questions, these MAGA Republicans, and Cohen was saying, look, here is what's going to happen to you. One of them actually at the time was Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff and now current co-defendant. And I asked Michael Cohen, he's my co-host on Political Beatdown, so I get to ask him directly. What do you think about Mark Meadows filing all these motions to try to get the case filed by Fulton County District Attorney Phony Willis from state court to federal court and then trying to block getting arrested? And, and what do you think just the general Cohen about all these MAGA Republicans out there in general, the Lauren Boebert to the Matt Gates and, 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 and all of them? Cohen has one of the greatest responses and of course in my interview with him he gives the famous michael cohen two finger salute so let's bring on michael cohen where he responds not just to the warning he gave mark meadows and talks about not just only the, the warning he gave to mark meadows but also just these other wwe cosplay fascists congress. in congress cohen says it the best here let's bring him on play the clip you know why? Because for the exact reasons that I had stated, that Donald Trump would be paler than Casper the Ghost <laughs> if, in fact, he had to go through the process the way everybody else goes through it. Mm. And Mark Meadows <laughs> is not going to get the Donald J. Trump former president treatment. That I can promise you. And so <laughs> this whole process is very um, gut-wrenching and Mark Meadows is now beginning to feel the pressure that everybody else in America that ends up having any issue whatsoever, justified or not, that they go through. Mark Meadows is now feeling that pressure. And I couldn't be happier, to be honest <laughs> with you, that he's feeling it. I warned that moron. I warned him when I testified before the House Oversight Committee. And he decided that he wanted to turn around and challenge when I stated that Donald Trump is a racist. And he paraded out Lynn Patton, the only biracial person that worked at the Trump Organization, right, um, was, was Lynn. And to turn around and say that mm-hmm. she's very Therefore, Donald, who hired her on behalf of the company, which is not true, it was actually Eric that hired her at my request, that clearly Donald cannot be a racist as a direct result. It's really such a stupid argument, no matter how you want to slice it. But I warn Mark Meadows, you are selling your soul to somebody who's... Let's throw you under the bus in a heartbeat. ...soul to somebody who is soulless and rest assured what he did to me he's going to end up doing to you because you're not special did he listen to me the answer is no and you know what sometimes you got to learn your lessons there mark now i did want to ask you something the letter that you put up uh from the house caucus that freedom caucus group can we post that one more time for a second who signed this letter salty you know, it seems to be written by on behalf of the entire Freedom Caucus, which is made up of like Gates and and all of the kind of ultra 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 MAGA. Like they're all MAGA, but it's that group of 
people who really control Kevin McCarthy. They're the ones who held up McCarthy's nomination. So, so are you going to really tell me that they put out? So they put out a document that's unsigned. Can you imagine? I and that was the that was the point. I thought maybe we were missing a second page onto it. You know, look. This is the whole problem with the Lauren Boberts, the Marjorie Toilet Greens, the Matt Gates, the whole group of them. Right? They're they are so they're they're so entrenched and they're so knee deep into the dumpster fire of the of the Trump cult that they don't even know what the hell they're doing anymore. They don't know what to say. It's all how can I be more you know of a shock jock than of a congressman? And the shit that they say and the stuff that they put out, they're too embarrassed to even put their names on it. Well, you know what? To each and every one of you, and you all know who you are because I actually don't know who's fully a part of this Freedom Caucus. For you, you get the two fucking fingers salute today. <laughs> Fuck you all in your stupidity. Do you not understand how precious democracy is? Do you not understand that the United States should never be an autocracy? We should never be a monarchy. And that's exactly what Donald Trump is looking to do. How stupid do you have to be to think that he will be loyal to you when he becomes the autocrat? In fact, he'll be just like Caesar was. He's going to start stabbing people and beheading people. It's going to be no different than watching The, the Handmaid's Tale when you're going to have one commander shooting and killing and throwing another commander under the bus because Donald is the ultimate alpha. He will not allow anybody else and anyone who starts to think that they too are an alpha will get the Kim Jong-un treatment of getting tied to a fucking tree and having somebody with a rocket right, you know, shoot a rocket launcher at you, blow you and the tree up with, you know, while you're watching this whole thing happening, like supposedly Kim Jong-un did to his uncle. This is who Donald Trump is. And the fact that they're not able to see it, members of Congress. Now, forget about the fact that whether or not he actually paid for this young girl, took her over state lines. I mean, does anything anymore preclude any of these GOP, you know, radical ridiculous fools does anything preclude them anymore from running or holding office i mean thank goodness at least the queen's people right the long island queen's people that are in george santos's um you know district fortunately they see through the fraud that this guy is and chances are that he's gonna get the shit kicked out of him at the upcoming you know um election but this is really no joke. Why? I mean, how many is it impossible to remove them from office? How many Matt Gaetzes, Josh Hawley, Marjorie Taylor Greens? I mean, how many of them do we need? And the answer is zero. We don't want any of them. We really need to stop this bullshit. And that's why, you know, I say this every time, Brigaders, some people love it. Some people aren't so happy with it. We must ensure that a blue wave in 2024 is so significant that there is no possibility whatsoever of any of these individuals ever returning back to dc starting with the mandarin mussolini himself make sure you subscribe make sure you subscribe to political beatdown wherever you get audio podcasts and hit subscribe right now on our youtube channel we're on our way to two million subscribers thanks to your support hit subscribe and have a great day
Oh, hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. And continue the conversation by following us on Instagram. We do one to the end and and uh, when I'm all caught up. Court of Appeals issues critical new ruling with major ramifications eight hours ago. Did you know that the biggest mistake you can make when recycling is recycling plastic? I've been recycling my... This is Michael Popak, Legal Layoff. We've got a major development with a new decision at the D.C. Court of Appeals in a two-to-one decision that's going to that's going to lead to a number of Jan 6 defendants already convicted and sentenced, having their sentences vacated, overturned, maybe let out of prison or probation, depending upon how much time has gone by, and then resentenced under the new rule that was just passed two-to-one by the D.C. Uh, Court of Appeals. What am I talking about? Right below the really bad people that committed all the felonies and are going away for between 5 and 18 years. And now in the case of the Proud Boys, the federal government, Department of Justice, asking for up to 33 years. There's a group right below them that contributed to the overthrow of the Capitol, to the outmatching uh, uh, of the Capitol Police and the D.C. Police. Right, that helps to help strain resources and the allocation of resources so that people could break in and break through, right? Cause carnage. The trespassers had a role, right? It's like the players or the chorus in, a, in an opera or in a play. They may not have a leading role, they may not have a speaking role, but they're up on the stage and they're important. They're in the chorus, right? And so these people, they were convicted of a crime, but the crime was a felony level. I'm sorry, a misdemeanor level, which put them at, you know, a year or less. But since the year or less wasn't going to be a long enough time to keep them off the streets for the next election, many judges gave them a combination of sentences in jail, six months, eight months, up to a year, and then a period of probation. It's referred to as a split sentence. It's done all the time in the state court system. And since 1994, and some uh, criminal reform law that was passed by the then Congress and Bill Clinton was in office, uh, you know, most people, most judges have assumed they have the power to both do a prison sentence and have supervised release and probation. Not anymore, not according to the D.C. Circuit Court. Two judges of that circuit court, because you have a three-judge panel for appeals. That's all you get. You don't like that? Next stop, U.S. Supreme Court, if they take the case. This was an interesting combination of two judges that ruled that their sentences for these misdemeanor people, the people who got probation plus time in prison, in order to stretch the Justice Walker 
is Judith Rogers. Judith Rogers was appointed by Bill Clinton. She knows better. She knows what Clinton and the and the uh, House was trying to do then in the 1994 Reform Act. She's been a judge since basically that time. And so she sided with Justin Walker and said, yes, it can only be probation or a, a prison sentence, but it can't be both the judge overstepped his boundaries. Your pet's a member of the family. My Lily certainly is. Don't treat them like they're in the doghouse. Give them no no. I love my dog so much and feel better giving her slash legal AF. Even though he didn't pick up the, the pulley shield to beat people, use bear spray, use his bare hands, set off. Try gnome.com slash legal AF. Now, there was a dissent. Judge Wilkins, who was appointed by Barack Obama, dissented and said that's exactly what the 1994 statute said. It gave the judges the discretion and the authority to do a split sentence if the facts supported it. I mean, for the person that they're debating over, when they're making a new law, you might be saying, well, who, who are we talking about? There's a guy named James Little. James Little was convicted of tr criminal trespass because he wouldn't leave, right? And like I said before, you know, there's no small players, you know, only small actors. He had a role, even though he didn't pick up the, the police shield to beat people, use bear spray, use his bare hand, his fist, the uh, flagpole, but he was there. And he was in places he shouldn't be, and he was part of the mob that was overrunning the Capitol. And so Judge Royce Lambert, who was a Republican appointed judge, wanted him off the street. And so he said, sure, I'm going to give you not 11 months in jail, but you're on probation through and after the next election. And that's where the judges in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said you went too far. You can give him jail. Which would be a short this is a misdemeanor you can't give him that long it's up to a year in most circumstances or you can give him probation but you can't do both because they already served the prison sentence because most of these people already went away they're going to get let off of probation because you can give only one and if the judge gave him prison and he's not allowed to give him probation the resentencing is going to be removing the probation, meaning when this person leaves or he's already left, he's off of probation and there's no control by the federal judge. Now, if he commits another crime, of course, between now and then, but we won't know it. If there's another Jan 6th or a November 2nd or a December whatever, you know, leading, you know, leading into the next election, he'll just commit a new crime. Now, of course, he'll have a higher criminal uh, background, a higher criminal uh, behavioral count for future sentencing, but he will be on the street. So that's what's going to happen now. There's a group of misdemeanor only Jan 6 defendants that, based on it's this so new weird. decision, mm -hmm. are going to be sprung from jail, right? If they're out already, their probation is going to be eliminated. If they're awaiting going into the system, the judge is going to have to make a choice, jail or probation, pick one. And the judge is going to you know, either say, oh, you didn't go in yet. I'm taking away your sentence. And if, they, if they've already served their time, they're off of probation. So this is the development. You got that level, right, where the Department of Justice is seeking five, eight, 18, 33 years for the bad people, the leaders, the seditious conspirators. But that other group, right, that makes up the bulk, right, the bulk of the 2,000 people or more that attacked the Capitol. They shouldn't be able to have no repercussion, having served their time. And so 
this is the development that we've seen. Now, if the Department Served of Justice doesn't get the result, I'm fucking I don't think trying they to will. Kill They'll take an appeal to the, to the Supreme Court. We'll see what the Supreme Court does next when it comes to law Where and order about the 1994 act that being interpreted by Justice Walker and Rogers, I believe, improperly. I'll bring hot takes just like this one so you know about Jan 6 defendants that are going to be off probation and wandering the streets with free liberty right before the next election on hot takes like this one on the free Midas Touch YouTube channel. Subscribe to their YouTube channel. You'll get content like this one and lots of other stuff, and they're trying to get to 2 million subscribers, and it's all free. We also have a podcast on the Midas Touch Network that are just like these hot them out beyond the next election that the judges over or in a play they may not have a leading role they may not have a speaking that's already convicted with a new decision at the dc court of appeals in a two-to-one decision that's going to vacate it overturned maybe let out of prison or probation depending upon how much time has gone by and then resentenced under the new rule that was just passed two to one by the dc uh, court of appeals what am i talking about right below the really bad people that committed all the felonies and are going away for between five and 18 years. And now in the the case of the Proud Boys, the federal government, Department of Justice, asking for up to 33 years. There's a group right below them that contributed to the overthrow of the Capitol, to the outmatching uh, uh, of the Capitol Police and the D.C. Police, right, that helped to help strain resources and the allocation of resources so that people could break in and break through, right, cause carnage. The trespassers had a role, right? It's like the players or the chorus in in an opera or in a play. They may not have a leading role, they may not have a speaking role, but they're up on the stage and they're important. They're in the chorus, right? And so these people, they were convicted of a crime, but the crime was a felony level. I'm sorry, a misdemeanor level, which put them at, you know, a year or less. But since the year or less wasn't going to be a long enough time to keep them off the streets for the next election, many judges gave them a combination of sentences in jail, six months, eight months, up to a year, and then a period of probation. It's referred to as a split sentence. It's done all the time in the state court system. And since 1994, and some uh, criminal reform law that was passed by the then Congress when Bill Clinton was in office, uh, you know, most people, most judges have assumed they have the power to both do a prison sentence and have supervised release and probation. Not anymore, not according to the D.C. Circuit Court. Two judges of that circuit court, because you have a three-judge panel for appeals. That's all you get. You don't like that? Next stop, U.S. Supreme Court, if they take the case. This was an interesting combination of two judges that ruled that their sentences for these misdemeanor people, the people who got probation plus time in prison, in order to stretch them out beyond the next election, that the judges overstepped their authority. And that they, they're not allowed to do that. They can either give a sentence or they can do probation, but they can't do both. It's one or the other, which was news to most federal judges because they've been doing this since 1994. So Justin Walker, who's a, a D.C. Court of Appeals justice appointed by Donald Trump, clerked for Brett Kavanaugh. Not only that, he went on television uh, over 140 times defending Brett Kavanaugh during the confirmation process because he was a former clerk. He's written articles in which he suggested that the FBI is a weapon of the whoever's sitting in the presidency, in this case Donald Trump, and should be properly used that way. 
Put that all aside, his jurisprudence and judgment aside for a minute. He's one judge. He needs another judge in order to vacate these sentences, overturn these sentences, and either release these people from, from jail right now or have them and or have them resentenced by the judges. Doesn't mean they're innocent, just means their sentences have to be adjusted and compensated for. But the second judge that joined Justice Walker is Judith Rogers. Judith Rogers was appointed by Bill Clinton. She knows better. She knows what Clinton and the and the uh, House was trying to do then in the 1994 Reform Act. She's been a judge since basically that time. And so she sided with Justin Walker and said, yes, it can only be probation or a, a prison sentence, but it can't be both. The judge overstepped his boundaries. Your pet's a member of the family. My Lily certainly is. Don't feed them like they're in the doghouse. Give them Gnome Gnome. Gnome Gnome delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog, better giving her better nutrition. And my dog loves the food appointed by Barack Obama, dissented and said that's exactly what the 1994 statute said. It gave the judges the discretion and the authority to do a split sentence if the facts supported it. I mean, for the person that they're debating over, when they're making a new law, you might be saying, well, who, who are we talking about? There's a guy named James Little. James Little was convicted of tr criminal trespass because he wouldn't leave, right? And like I said before, you know, there's no small players you know, all these small actors, he had a role. Even though he didn't pick up the, the police shield to beat people, use bear spray, use his bare hand, his fist, the flagpole, but he was there. And he was in places he shouldn't be, and he was part of the mob that was overrunning the Capitol. And so Judge Royce Lampert, who was a Republican appointed judge, wanted him off the street. And so he said, sure, I'm going to give you not 11 months in jail, but you're on probation through and after the next election. And that's where the judges in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said you went too far. You can give him jail, which would be a short. This is a misdemeanor. You can't give him that long. It's up to a year in most circumstances. Or you can give him probation, but you can't do both. Because they already served the prison sentence, because most of these people already went away. They're going to get let off of probation. Because you can give only one, and if the judge gave him prison, and he's not allowed to give him probation, the resentencing is going to be removing the probation. Meaning when this person leaves, or he's already left, he's off of probation, and there's no control by the federal judge. Now, if he commits another crime, of course, between now and then, but we won't know it. If there's another Jan 6th, or a November 2nd, or a December whatever, you know, leading, you know, leading into the next election, He'll just commit a new crime. Now, of course, he'll have a higher criminal uh, background, a higher criminal uh, behavioral count for future sentencing, but he will be on the street. So that's what's going to happen now. There's a group of misdemeanor-only Jan 6 defendants that, based on this new decision, are going to be sprung from jail, right? If they're out already, their probation is going to be eliminated. If they're awaiting going into the system, the judge is going to have to make a choice, jail or probation, pick one. And the judge is going to you know, either say, oh, you didn't go in yet, I'm taking away your sentence. And if, they, if they've already served their time, they're off of probation. So this is the development. You got that level, right, where the Department of Justice is seeking five, eight, 18, 33 years for the bad people, the leaders, the seditious conspirators. But that other group, right, that makes up the bulk, right, 
the bulk of the 2,000 people or more that attacked the Capitol, they shouldn't be able to have no repercussion having served their time. And so uh, this is the development that we've seen. Now, if the Department of Justice doesn't like the result, and I don't think they will, they'll take an appeal to the, to the Supreme Court, and we'll see what the Supreme Court does next when it comes to law and order about the 1994 act that was being interpreted by Justice Walker and Rogers, I believe, improperly. I'll bring hot takes just like this one so you know about Jan 6 defendants that are going to be off probation and wandering the streets with free liberty right before the next election on hot takes like this one on the free Midas Touch YouTube channel. Subscribe to their YouTube channel. You'll get content like this one and lots of other stuff, and they're trying to get to 2 million subscribers, and it's all free. We also have a podcast on the Midas Touch Network that are just like these hot takes, except we got two other uh, anchors along with me, and we put it all together in a show we call Legal AF at that intersection of U.S. law and politics. Go on the MidasTouch.com website. You'll see contributors like me, all my hot takes, the, the website uh, content, which is, you know, we have a, they have basically have a newsroom that's writing at the intersection of law and politics and law and politics, and all of our uh, videos, right, our hot takes and podcasts, all there on the website. You like what I'm doing? Give me a thumbs up here. It helps with that algorithm. And you can follow me on all things social media and the Legal AF podcast at MS Popak. Until the next hot take, this is Michael Popak, Legal AF. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram at Midas Touch. Let's keep up with the most no important Instagram. news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. She just Exclamation point. Stormy Daniels unleashes on Trump after mugshot. Come out with your hands up, Trump. Traitor Trump, it's over. Motherfucker. Traitor. Terrorist and thief. Here's a warning shot. Motherfucker. Come out with your hands up, shit brain. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Stormy Daniels is mocking Donald Trump for Trump's claim that he weighs 215 pounds in the uh, booking information when Donald Trump surrendered in Fulton County. Let me show you what Stormy Daniels wrote on her social media. Stormy Daniels writes... Okay, and I'm 110 pounds and a virgin. I'm not a scale or a doctor. 
but I have spent time beneath 215-pound men, and Tiny was not one of them. And of course, <laughs> Stormy Daniels is uh, involved as a key witness in the hush money case brought it by the Manhattan District Attorney against Donald Trump. She had a three to four second sexual encounter with Donald Trump. I think she said that's how long it lasted. She calls him tiny for obvious reasons. And Donald Trump wanted to cover that up before the 2016 election. And so he paid hush money payments through Michael Cohen to her and then classified that as legal fees to Michael Cohen in violation of uh, New York uh, law. Nobody ever asked and her why Stormy Daniels of course, um, would know uh, a thing or two about Donald Trump's weight, and here she is uh, weighing in. Not the first time Stormy Daniels has weighed in, uh, <laughs> pun intended, on Donald Trump. <laughs> By the way, the fact that Donald Trump says that he is 215 pounds and that he's 6'3", by the way, Muhammad Ali's recorded height and weight was 6'3", 216 pounds. Here's a post from Spyro's Ghost right here where that's uh, Spyro's Ghost posting this photo of Muhammad Ali. Here's Donald Trump. I, I just, I don't, you know, the level of sociopathic malignant narcissism, the, 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 the photo, it's just one of the most bizarre things. This was an interview Stormy Daniels gave on April of twenty twenty. Where Donald Trump repeatedly calls her horse face over and over and over again. So her response is, well, if he keeps calling me horse face, he was attracted to me and chased me around. Does that, what does that make him? Um, here, play this clip of Stormy Daniels. This is like our president of the United States, ladies and gentlemen, outing to the world that he has a penchant for bestiality because this is a guy who chased me for sex repeatedly and then says I look like a horse face. Like, how do you talk about the looks of someone that you were attracted to without making yourself look bad? I mean, it was hilarious. And then, by the way, this is from back in January of 2023 when Donald Trump made this post about Stormy Daniels where he said, with respect to the Stormy nonsense, it is very old and happened long time ago, long past it the very publicly known and accepted ago. statute of limitation. I place full reliance on the judgment and advice of counsel, which he spells wrong, who I had every reason to believe had a license to practice law, was competent and was able to appropriately provide solid legal services. He came from a law firm represented other clients over the years and there was no reason not to rely on him and i did stormy daniel's response to that was thanks for just admitting that i was telling the truth about everything guess i'll take my quote horse face back to bed now mr <laughs> former president and she puts in quotes by the way that's the correct way to use quotation marks and i mean just <laughs> by the way the fact that you have Donald Trump making hush money payments to an adult film actress to try to cover that up before the 2016 elections. The fact that he's out there calling her a horse face on a fairly regular basis. She's responding to him, of course. The fact that this even exists okay. and that's the leader of, course, of the Republican of Party. I mean, not to mention, of course, that he was found liable by a New York federal jury for being a sexual abuser. Which means this is who the Republican right Party has this. become. There's nothing normal about this. Um, by the way, this is uh, President Joe Biden's response when he was asked about Trump's mugshot. Here, play this clip. Yeah, Have you seen Donald Trump's mugshot yet? Yeah. 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 Yeah
handsome guy. He's not a fucking handsome guy. Okay, and just compare that to like what they're saying on yeah. Fox. It's some weird stuff. This is MAGA Republican Jesse Waters being Poor propagandist Malcolm on Fox. And Waters, the Fox host, says this is what they're I said, spewing uh, on Fox. Say, says, say, I say this with an unblemished record of heterosexuality. He looks good and he looks hard. Play this clip. I am now going to book the Fulton County photographer Thanks for my Christmas card. Evil man. <laughs> because, Judge, and I say this with a unblemished record of Basic heterosexuality. He looks good. And, and he looks hard. And heart health like and staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you want to be able to spend as much time with as possible, is so, so important. We all have oh, a heartfelt yeah, a reason family, to support our blood pressure. In fact, more than half yeah. of the U.S. population would benefit from blood pressure support. Super Beats Heart Shoes are an easy oh. and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure, them. and they provide a 30-day Very. supply for the fourth time.
Yeah, so Lord Lord can say your promise if you can't get it. And hi, this is Nicole Hockfield, so from San Diego Prime. Kenneth Chessbro or Cheesebro, uh, the attorney, the nerdy attorney who was once a respected liberal attorney. What happened, man? But who has turned hard right conservative? Ken Cheeseborough wants a speedy trial. So what does that mean in the Fonnie Willis case? So he is charged uh, in in the Fonnie Willis case. He's also an unindicted co-conspirator in uh, in in Jack Smith, the special counsel's January 6th case against Donald Trump. But Ken Cheeseborough was a little-known uh, attorney who we didn't really think he there was a lot of evidence against him uh, in the January 6th case. He was holding himself out to be someone who was a lawyer giving advice to candidate Trump. However, we have recently learned about a very significant memo that he wrote on December 6th that absolutely shows he is one of the architects of the fake elector scheme, the pressure campaign against Pence, and the entire the entire criminal conspiracy and, and criminal scheme to steal the election from Joe Biden. It all comes down to Ken Cheeseborough and his gymnastics, his mental gymnastics of twisting the law in ways that you absolutely have to, it's like a contortionist. It's not even in the realm of what's actually the law, but he uses his brain for bad and, and makes it so and takes things out of context and interprets the laws in ways that is is actually quite dangerous, wrong, and illegal. So <clears throat> Ken Cheesebro has asked for a speedy trial in his... Uh